Today's episode of Creepscast is sponsored by Simply Safe. Take advantage of Simply Safe's early Black Friday deals and get 50% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com/mrcreeps. Hello everyone. We're back at it again with another week of scary stories from the internet. I really think you're going to like these ones this week. Let's get right into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I was a career bank robber. I saw something last night that changed that forever. Written by Leo of Alexandria. I was a career bank robber. I saw something last night that changed that. Why do you need my name? Don't you have it? Fine. Sorry, I'm still shaken up. You won't believe what happened to me. And I mean that in the most literal sense. Start from the beginning. I'll do my best. 27 banks in three years. Anything to catch the perfect wave. That was the tagline on the poster of the 1991 action thriller starring Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze. Two FBI agents attempt to track and apprehend a group of L.A. bank robbers before their last job of the season. After that, they'll be gone until the next summer. That movie inspired me. I wanted that lifestyle of easy money, adrenaline, and free living. I'm sure a movie like that might have inspired the good guys to go the other way. To see FBI agents working their butts off to put the bad guys behind bars... I guess I just wasn't built like that. Bodie, Swayze's character, was intelligent. He was handsome, charismatic, athletic. Everything a young man strives for in his formative years. I was maybe 9 or 10 when I first saw that movie, so I was impressionable. I'm not going to say I live my life by that movie or anything. I don't surf and I've never surfed in fact. The older that I got, the thing I kept most to me was how they worked. As I progressed in my bank robbing career, I saw the guys I worked with stuck to that basic style. Get in, get cash from the register, don't go to the vault. By the first time that I did my first job, banks were much easier to hit. As with everything, technology was limited in the bank system. Most areas that I hit didn't have the ceiling-to-floor bulletin blast-proof glass. You could jump over the teller and force them to give you every bit of cash they had in the register. Two minutes was the standard. One guy kept time, making sure that we didn't stay over that mark. After that, it was ghost time. As the years went by, tactics changed. and Dye packs were becoming more popular, and we worked around that. And glass started going up. Security beefed up. A lot more planning was necessary to come away with the maximum amount of return possible. I became a part of that process the more experience that I got. I worked my way through the ranks of bank robbers. That also meant I was entitled to a larger slice of the pie when all was said and done. I always looked at this as a real job. This is how I made my money and financed my own life. I never married, never had any kids, and didn't have many real relationships. 
It's kind of hard when your life is taking part in felony jobs every month. I always carried the necessary amount of firepower that the job called for. Thankfully, I never had to use it. Like the point man always said to the customers and employees, this isn't your money, it's insured. No one had to die for a few thousand dollars. I fortunately never ran into any heroes that wanted to cause problems during the robbery. No rent-a-cop security guards, no off-duty cops ever tried to stop us. We were too good and too fast. The quicker we were in and out, the quicker everyone could go about their lives. After a good decade, I finally acquired my own dream crew. Turbo was our getaway driver and vehicle guy. He always had a line on a new hot ride. He had his own connections to a vehicle that could disappear as needed, and it was always fast. Turbo knew how to drive like the devil. Tree was the main enforcer in my crew. He came highly recommended from a friend of mine I started with but got out of the business fairly early on in life. I'm not sure where he went, but I imagined he followed the felon's retirement plan. Either he died, or he's sitting on a Mexican beach somewhere. He gave me Tree, and that's all I need to remember about him. Tree was an intimidator, a real bad dude who had no qualms about busting someone's nose with the stock of an 870 shotgun if they needed it. It showed the rest of the folks in the bank to just lay down and let what was happening happen. The closest thing I had to a best friend in the business was my second in charge. We simply called him the timekeeper. He oversaw the time that we got in and the time that we exited. He kept all of us honest and on track. He also served the dual purpose of planning the hits with me. Supposedly, he had a master's degree of psychology from the University of Los Angeles. None of us got too personal with each other. That was one of our hard, fast rules. Don't get too close. I've lost one or two guys during a job. I don't want to get into that right now, though. And that brings us back to me, the star of the show. They call me Hollywood. I have a penchant for theatrics, I suppose. I found myself becoming the leader or points man the more that I did these jobs. I had a natural way of speaking with people that were getting robbed. I don't want to brag, but I consider myself kind of attractive. I just happened to have that long, sandy blonde hair that Swayze had in Point Break. I guess I was always meant to follow in Bodhi's footsteps. As poetic as it would be, we didn't wear ex-president masks or anything. Our standard dress was tactical-type pants, jackets, and ski masks. Classic, but practical. I did follow the ex-president's method, though. We hit a specific group of banks in a period of three to four months, and then we were gone. Leaving the local and federal law enforcement groups scratching their heads, waiting for us to strike again. When that would be, well, we made that hard to guess. The worst part of my job is always looking over your shoulder. When we weren't working, we lived normal lives. As normal as they could be. I always scanned my daily life, though. Seeing if I was being followed by strange-looking vans. Sweeping my home for bugs. And keeping up with the police blotter. It was worth it, though. To live a lavish life and to have everything you ever wanted. 
just by knocking off a few banks every year. The last job I did changed all of that. I don't know what I saw that night. I'm sure I'll never know and I'll be haunted until the day that I die. Do you want me to go on with it? The only difference in this job was the time that we did it, for starters. Usually, I planned on going into the bank in the middle of the day. A good 2pm job was the best. Statistically, the lowest traffic time for bank activity. Today though, for some reason I scoped out this bank that closed at 8pm on a Tuesday. I wish I never hit this one. I thought we would get a much bigger return than what we were looking at. The bank closed at 9 on this particular day. That means that one hour before close, they should have the maximum amount of cash in the registers before they put it back into the vault for the night. These days, there isn't as much cash transactions, so it's hard to predict how much we could get. It's become something of a crapshoot as to how much we could come away with. This isn't ideal for a highly skilled group like us. We would like to know as close as possible to what we exactly were looking at stealing. This night, we didn't steal anything. I was stolen from. My crew was all set up. Turbo was in the driver's seat of the Monte Carlo. I was in the passenger seat. Tree and Timekeeper were in the back. The bank was running as it was supposed to. Nothing out of the ordinary. The sun was just starting to dip. Still plenty of light. We always worked best in the light. We didn't worry about being seen. It would be impossible to identify us anyway. We all wore the exact same dress with the exact same ski mask. Today we chose green. No reason. We all had similar builds especially with the Kevlar body protection. Except for Tree. He towered over the rest of us. The plan was in motion. And it should have carried out like every other time. But it didn't. Hollywood did his thing. That's me if you forget. I'd become accustomed to speaking about myself in the third person. Like a true Hollywood man. Everyone on the ground, palms down. No one needs to get hurt tonight. All your money is insured. The bank will be fine. You'll be fine. That's how I started it. Like always. Tree threw one of these security guards to the ground, aiming his shotgun at his head. He scanned the room like a menacing sentinel. I heard these squealing tires as Turbo took off around the block. He would swing back around in a minute and a half to pick us up. No reason to have the evidence parked out in front in case the police showed up early, which they never did. We had tested the response time several times over the last few weeks to this place. The first squad car showed up in three minutes, and that gave us plenty of time. One minute forty, timekeeper screamed. We are only there for 20 seconds, and that was our cue to start getting moving. I walked up to the tether window. Tree walked beside me to the other window. Our eyes usually convey what we need from the employees. Just put the money through the little slot lady. And they did as they were told, even though we didn't say a word. We both watched as they shoved hundreds and then thousands of dollars under the little opening under the window. Multiple bills with Benjamin, Jackson, and Hamilton flooded into our duffels. We didn't bother with the small bills. As I watched the money pour in, humming the we're in the money tune inside my head, the lights went black. 
As I said, it was still very much light outside. Now, it was black. No light from the windows, no light from the inside. The ugly fluorescent lights shut down. They didn't break or anything, they just went dead. What the heck is going on, Hollywood? Did you plan on cutting the power? Tree yelled. I didn't plan this. Keep your cool, Tree. I don't know what this is, but just grab what you have and start making your way toward the door. Hey, TK, what's our time? No response. TK, where we at? Again, nothing. Tree, let's go, I yelled, my voice showing more concern than I would like. I didn't hear a soul breathing in that place. I figured they had already left. I zipped up my bag and headed for what I thought was the exit. When I turned around, I expected to see the red faint glow of an exit sign above the front door, as is standard with all commercial and government-owned buildings. I saw nothing. I started yelling for anyone of my crew to sound off, and then I saw it. Surrounded by darkness, a woman appeared in front of me. I dropped my gun and slowly started walking toward her. I was caught in her gaze. I felt like everything was okay. I felt an intense, warm feeling of acceptance. I was getting closer and closer without walking on my own. After being moved to this woman, I stopped a foot away from her. I closed my eyes. When I opened them, two red pupils stared back at me. My body was frozen in shock for what felt like an eternity. The eyes lit up like the fire of Hades, and now I could make out the rest of her face. Her nose was gone. Her mouth opened impossibly large, revealing no teeth or tongue, just a void of black. I could feel her inhaling, like she was preparing to load any and all energy she could to release on me. As she inhaled as much as she could, she paused, and at this moment I paused and everything went quiet. I watched my childhood, I saw my parents both good people push me on a swing on the playground. I thought about the chances I had, the choices I made, and then destruction as she screamed red fury into my face. I couldn't shield myself. I tried to close my eyes, but the sheer force of her voice kept my eyelids from shutting. She was pulverizing me. I couldn't lift my arms, and I couldn't move anything. I was frozen in fear and panic. Our brains work in strange ways during extreme stress. I kept hearing a voice tell me to give up, to give in, and then I woke up. A white, clean room. Boring fake wood desk in front of me. Harsh, fluorescent light overhead. Dr. Friedland stares at me. Do you remember anything else, Adam? I don't know why he keeps calling me that. I never gave any real name. I never do. I'm Hollywood. No, doctor, it's never changed. I've explained this over and over again. I passed out after that demon succubus melted my face off. I'm sure that I got arrested, and now I've been here in the psych ward, trying to explain what happened. Dr. Friedland scribbled into his little secretive notepad, as he did in all of our sessions. I'm sure that I'll never get to see those notes. As long as I get out of here, I don't care. Are we done? The good doctor nods his head, shuts his notes, and knocks on his door. 
This always signals the orderly to come and escort me back to my room. Dr. Friedland picks up the phone as Adam gets shuffled out. Hey, Bill. Yeah, he's fine. Same story, yep. He thinks that I've been talking with him much longer than I have. I think this is only our second session since he's been here. You remember he wasn't ready to be seen for quite a while. For security reasons. Yeah, he sure does. He's staying with that story that he was a bank robber. I know. People cope with life in very different ways. I would like to take a minute to thank this week's sponsor of the show, Simply Safe. If you have ever wanted to make your home feel safer, there is no better time than now. This week, our friends at Simply Safe are giving Creepscast listeners early access to all their Black Friday deals, 50% off their award-winning home security. I love Simply Safe because it has everything you need to make your home safe: indoor and outdoor cameras, comprehensive sensors, all monitored around the clock by trained professionals who send help the instant that you need it. When I put up my Simply Safe security system, it didn't take me long to realize that it was the real deal. It's super easy to use and provides me with a peace of mind that's honestly priceless. If you're interested in a security system, this is the best time to get one, because these are Simply Safe's biggest discounts of the year. You can get a complete home security system starting at just over $100. Take advantage of Simply Safe's early Black Friday deals and get 50% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com slash mrcreeps. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash mrcreeps for 50% off your entire system. I'm house-sitting and the noises behind this locked door are driving me insane. Written by Sugarfruit33 Before they moved, I used to live next to a sweet, elderly couple. They were classic high school sweethearts, skipped college and married immediately after graduating. The wife would come over asking for things like sugar and coffee beans, and sometimes we would even sit down for a cup of tea and just chat. We weren't best friends, but we were very friendly neighbors. One day, they moved to another town in our state about half an hour away. But even as the months passed, there was trust there. One that led her to ask me to house-sit for her while they were on vacation. She and her husband needed a change of scenery, said being in the house all the time exhausted them. And since they were childless, the only other person they trusted was me. It would only be for a weekend. They also offered money, which at the time I desperately needed. So I said that I would do it. Right before they left, they gave me a handwritten list of rules and chores to do around the house. Things like watering plants, places that get dustier than others, and so on. It wasn't a lot to manage, especially for just a week. When I first stepped inside of the house, I was immediately hit with a hair-raising chill. The inside was ice cold. I crossed my arms as I searched for the thermostat. Jesus Christ, 
I muttered to myself as I raised it from 40 degrees. Looking around the house, it's exactly what you would expect from an out-of-the-residence. Black and white photos, knickknacks with fading paint, country kitchen decor, and lots of those home-as-where-the-heart-is type of signs. The most modern thing in there was a flat-screen TV. After checking out the first floor, I made my way up the creaky stairs. As I ascended them, I suddenly slowed as my brow furrowed. At the top of the steps were rows of doors, but that wasn't the weird part. There was something off about the first door. The door itself wasn't weird, but it looked out of place. The gap between its door frame and the one next to it was oddly close. It looked so cramped in the corner of the hall. The house had probably been standing for hundreds of years, so I brushed it off as poor architecture. Wondering what was inside, I attempted to open it, but I was met with a knob that wouldn't budge. I knew that you wanted me to keep the whole house clean, so I was shocked to find a locked room. Quickly skimming through the list again, I didn't see anything about where to find a key or if I was just supposed to leave the room alone. Once again, I shrugged it off and just kept going. They never mentioned where I was supposed to sleep either so I just pushed open doors until I found a bedroom. After finding a bathroom and a sewing room, I found their bedroom. I felt weird about sleeping in their bed, so I continued down the hall to the last door. Inside was a nearly empty guest bedroom, the only things in there being a bed, a dresser, and a window. The walls were painted a blinding yellow, and the bright sunlight beaming in didn't make it any more bearable. As I collapsed onto the bed, I let out a deep sigh. It would only be a week, I told myself. I spent the rest of the day lounging on the couch while watching TV, watering the plants and waiting for dust to build up so I could brush it away. As the sun set and the moon rose, I dragged myself to bed for the night. Although I hadn't really done anything all day, I was knocked out cold once my head hit the pillow. The next morning, I woke up with an exhaustion that left my head feeling like a bowling ball. As I poured a coffee, I felt like I could collapse where I stood, but I had another long day of dusting shelves and watering plants. For the rest of the day, my feet dragged across the floorboards. Walking back and forth down the upstairs hallway, I always glanced at the peculiar door at the corner of my eye. Something about it just made me feel queasy. My neighbor said that I could call her if I needed anything, but this felt stupid to bother her about. It wasn't my house, and it wasn't my locked door. It wasn't my business. But my curiosity never failed to peek as I passed by it. When I had finished my task for the day, I figured a little exploring couldn't hurt. First, I checked the most obvious spot, but there was no key above the doorframe. Pulling open drawers, I pilfered through a bunch of hoarded junk, but I was met with no keys. After the failed attempts, I chewed on the inside of my cheek as I brainstormed. Suddenly, a light bulb lit up above my head. I jogged upstairs as I pulled a bobby pin out of my hair. 
Lockpicking wasn't a skill that I previously picked up, but there's a first for everything. I jammed it into the lock and jiggled it around as I grumbled and curses to myself. Crap, I sighed as I yanked the pin back out. I don't know why, but I just needed to know what was behind it. I guess it was because the day-to-day -day in that house was painfully boring. I needed something interesting. I dropped to my knees and attempted to look under the door, but all I saw was faint sunlight. Until another light bulb. Sunlight means a window. I stepped outside and made my way towards the backyard. Observing the house with squinted eyes, I searched for where the window would be. But as I scoped out the entire house, my brows furrowed. I couldn't find it. I stood puzzled as I scanned every inch with my gaze. It was impossible. The back wall of the room should have been right there. The only logical explanation was that the light I saw was a lamp or a ceiling light. But why leave a light on in a locked room? She was old, but I never thought of her as senile. But I shrugged it off and went back inside. I didn't need to psych myself out over a locked door. As the clock struck 12, I collapsed onto the bed again. I felt like I hadn't slept in years, and stressing about that stupid room drained even more of my energy. Within seconds, I was out like a light. As I snored under a heavy slumber and a deep dream, I almost thought that I heard faint music in the distance. It was a slow and rich violin, one that made me want to dance down the halls. And as my eyes creaked open, my dream melted away, but the music didn't. I rubbed my eyes as I slowly sat up, static clinging to my long hair. I looked out the window in a daze, the moonlight beaming through the tree branches. I glanced over at the door with heavy lids, furrowing my brows as the music continued to play. Slowly making my way towards the door, I cracked it open. As I poked my head out, the music got louder. I thought that it was coming from outside, but it sounded like it was coming from inside of the house. I crossed my arms as nausea brewed in my stomach, making my way down the hall. With each step, the music grew louder. As I got closer to the source of it, I then heard faint voices. When I reached the end of the hall, I realized it was coming from behind the locked door. I looked it up and down in confusion, my eyes shifting around as I listened to the unintelligible conversations. Then I hesitantly leaned in and pressed my ear against the door. Hearing a collection of overlaying conversations and clinking glasses, it almost sounded like a party. I then dropped to my knees and attempted to peek under the door. I briefly saw the souls of loafers in heels, their shadows shifting as they walked around. I slowly got back to my feet and hesitantly raised my fist. Hello? I spoke softly as I knocked. Suddenly, the conversations quickly faded to silence as the violin halted to a screeching stop. I retracted my fist against my chest as I stared at the door with wide eyes. I stood for a moment in deafening silence, my body frozen with fear. 
Then the sound of a stampeding footsteps came towards the door. I flinched backwards as they began pressing against the door, caving it outwards as its hinges creaked. My throat nodded as I let out a shaking breath, fearful of it snapping off its hinges. Muffled, unintelligible whispers could be heard from behind the door as these shadows of feet projected across the floorboards. After what felt like hours, the door straightened out as they stepped back, the music and chit-chat instantly resuming. I blinked rapidly in disbelief as I continued to stare at the door. Then I stiffly turned around and slowly made my way back towards the guest room, shutting the door behind me to minimize the noise. I crawled back into bed with a big question mark still above my head. I couldn't process what had happened. I couldn't even believe it. I thought about calling the police, but what would I tell them? That there's a party behind a locked door in an elderly lady's house. At that point, I couldn't even tell if I was dreaming or not. But instead, I tried to sleep. But with a pounding heart and the distracting music... I laid with open heavy eyelids for the rest of the night. I don't even recall if I fell asleep or not. All I remember is that the sun was suddenly up and the music had stopped. I felt like absolute death when I lifted my body off the bed. The exhaustion was killer and a cup of coffee couldn't even fix it. I went through the motions of the day again, mediocrely dusting these shelves and probably overwatering the plants. Each time I walked past the door, I picked up my pace. I didn't even want to be near it. Throughout the day, I found myself having to take breaks from just walking up the stairs. I was out of breath so easily, and my muscles ached as if I had just run a marathon. I skipped dinner, and I crashed early that night. I couldn't even function by the time that the sun had set. As I felt myself finally drift off... I winced as I was yanked out of it by the sound of a man's booming voice. I shut up, instinctively looking out the window, till I realized that it was coming from inside the house again. Suddenly, a woman's shouts began as well. It sounded like a bickering couple, but something about the way that they were speaking wasn't right. It was English, but not coherent. A jumble of words that felt like a foreigner hearing the language for the first time. I flinched again as the sound of shattering glass hit the walls. I pulled my knees to my chest as my body trembled. Unable to block out raging screams the couple exchanged. A tear streamed down my cheek as I felt defeated. All I wanted was to fall asleep. My trembling grew as impacting furniture shook the walls. And then, I felt one of their footsteps pound around the room. Each stomp sent a jolt through me from head to toe. As they seemed to be exchanging shredding goodbyes, I jumped where I sat as he slammed the door. I went to let out a deep sigh of relief until my heart stopped. That meant he was in the hallway. I flew from the bed, almost slipping on the sheets and ran for the door. Footsteps echoed on the hall as I reached for the knob. With sweaty, tremoring fingers, I twisted the lock, and then I flinched backwards, a yelp escaping from me as he began pounding on the door. I slowly continued to back away as the door shook on its hinges with each bang. He then began spewing jumbled screams at me. 
My back hit the wall and I slid down it, tears streaming down my terrified expression as he continued his barrage. As I curled up against the wall, I closed my teary eyes and prayed. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in any higher power. But I prayed. I prayed that this malevolent being would vanish. But my prayers went unanswered, as he then began kicking the door as well. I prepared myself for the moment that the door would fly open, or a hole would be busted through it. I prepared for that moment until the sun rose. As sunlight poured through my window, everything came to a sudden stop. I lifted my head, my cheeks stained with dried tears. My eyes darted around, alarmed by the sudden silence. I stumbled to my feet, unable to stop my body from shaking. Instinctively, I wanted to check if he was actually gone, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. I no longer felt safe outside of this room. I sidestepped towards the bed, keeping my eyes locked on the door. I crawled into it, hiding under the covers like a child in fear of the boogeyman. I didn't grow enough of a pair to leave until the afternoon, when my stomach began growling and my bladder overfilled. I knew that I had to leave eventually. Screw it, I whispered to myself as I hopped out of bed and went for the door. Like ripping off a band-aid, I threw the door open, my heart skipping a beat as it opened. I attempted to slow my shaking breath as I looked into the empty hall. Hesitantly peeking outside, I scanned the rest of it. Completely empty, as if nothing had happened. Not even any dents in the door. Absolutely nothing. I couldn't tell if I was going insane. I knew that prolonged exhaustion caused hallucination, but this felt too real. Yet I couldn't get it off my mind that maybe my tired brain was making all of this up. Deep down, I wanted to bolt out of the door and never come back. But if you've ever been in a knee-deep financial situation, you know a ghost couldn't stand between you and a wad of cash. Five more days. You can do five more days. Truthfully, I couldn't handle five more days, but my overdue car payment said otherwise. Instead of bailing, I tried to figure out what was happening. As I dragged myself through the daily chores, I pondered about its rhyme or reason. Two nights in a row, these bizarre occurrences came from that room. It starts at nighttime and it ends when the sun rises. It doesn't seem to be hostile, yet... And yes, I know it literally tried to bust my door down, but it tried to for hours and I felt like if it wanted to, it would've. Was it trying to antagonize me? Scare me out of the house? I struggled to hold these thoughts as I found myself falling asleep at the table. I realized that I hadn't gotten more than a minute of sleep since I got there, and each sip of caffeine felt like it was going down my throat and into a black hole. I contemplated sleeping on the couch, but that left me with no door to lock. With each idea being crumpled and tossed into a mental trash can, I felt like I was being backed into a corner, and all I wanted to do was sleep. My body couldn't handle the exhaustion anymore. It was a crumbling me. 
I decided to spend some time out of the house to get some vitamin D. As I stepped outside, I squinted my throbbing eyes as the blinding sun rays hit. It felt like I hadn't left in years. I went on a quick jog to try and get my blood flowing, maybe regain some energy, and that worked a bit, but my body soon begged to drop to the floor. My day out was cut short as I needed to go home before I collapsed on the pavement. Re-entering the house felt so heavy, like the atmosphere was palpable, but I still felt like I hadn't been taking care of myself the past few days. All my attention had been on the house and that room. So I trotted up to the bathroom, my gaze glancing towards the haunted door as I had passed it. As I stepped in front of the mirror, I gasped at the sight of myself. It felt like a corpse was looking back at me as I stared with a gaping expression. I slowly reached up and pulled down my cratered eyelid, observing the enlarged blood vessels that branched throughout my sclera. Then I ran my finger across my sunken cheeks. I knew that I hadn't been eating as much as I should, but I had only been here for three days, yet I looked like I was decaying. It took everything in me to hold myself back from spiraling into a panic attack, so I threw open the bathroom mirror and reached for my toothbrush. Keeping my view away from the mirror, I looked down at the sink as I squeezed minty paste under the brush. As I began brushing, I felt something slip past my lip and clank against the sink. With the brush in my mouth, I slowly looked down. My eyes widened, my body frozen, as I saw a tooth jammed in the drain. My body began to tremble as my eyes were locked on it, the pouring water brushing past it. I slowly removed the brush from my mouth as I looked up. Hesitantly lowering my jaw, my expression crumbled in despair as I pulled my lip and revealed a gap in the bottom row of my teeth. The brush slipped from my weakening grip as I stumbled backwards against the wall. I squeezed my eyes shut as I began to hyperventilate, praying that I would wake up from this demented dream. But it was far from a dream. It was a waking nightmare. What is happening to me all I wanted was to get in my car and get away as quickly as possible, but I wouldn't be able to stay awake for a half hour car ride, and my body was ready to slip into a coma. If I was going to be stuck here for four more days, I needed to know if my neighbor knew anything about this. As I stumbled out of the bathroom and into the guest room, I wondered if this was the reason why they left, if this thing tormented them too. But why dump it on me? Why put me through this? I grabbed my phone off the nightstand and sat on the bed, attempting to unlock my phone with shaking hands. I looked for the phone app through sagging lids, feeling the exhaustion cost me. Before I could make it to my contacts list, I could feel my body forcing myself into slumber. I had pushed myself to the breaking point as I collapsed onto the bed, my phone dropping to the floor. When I finally woke up, I remember my eyes creaking open to reveal blurry vision, a nausea so vicious that it plagued my stomach and my throat singed from acid reflux. For a split second, I almost forgot where I was. I didn't know how long I slept, but 
but I saw the beaming sun through the window. As I lifted my body, it felt like I was moving in slow motion. My head was so clotted, the days almost put me to sleep again. As I attempted to stand up, my knees buckled and I collapsed to the ground. I groaned as I lifted myself with shaking arms. It felt like all my strength had been drained. Next to my hand was my phone, which I realized was dead after I had tapped its screen. At this point, no amount of money was worth it. I needed to call her and tell her that I had to go early. I would make up any excuse to get the heck out of here. On my second attempt to stand, I finally got myself up as I stood like a freshly born doe. I plugged my phone in and counted on these seconds till it finally turned on. I crossed my arms as my body shivered, my desert dry tongue sticking to the roof of my mouth. As my phone powered on, I snatched it and prepared to call her. But as I saw my home screen, I saw three missed calls from her. I furrowed my brows as I stared at the notifications, and then I slowly glided my eyes up the screen. I had fallen asleep on June 3rd. The date read June 8th. I had slept for five whole days. My stomach sank as I read it, batting my eyelashes in disbelief. Yet a part of me was relieved because that meant this was the day that they would come back. I swiped on the missed call and began ringing her back. I sniffed as I lifted the phone to my ear, waiting as it rang. I, I'm sorry, I slept in on accident. No, oh, that's alright, dear. We just got off the plane and we're on our way back home. I can't thank you enough for doing this. You don't need to wait for us. Can I leave a check in your mailbox, too? Yeah, that's, that's fine. You sound exhausted, hon. Was that couch uncomfortable? You were welcome to take our room. Oh, no, I took the guest room, if that's alright. Guest room? Yeah, the one with the blinding yellow walls. We don't have a guest room, dear. Everything deafened to white noise as my entire body ran numb. I slowly scanned the room as my heart raised. And oh, I hate the color yellow, she chuckled. Me too. I couldn't tell if I was trembling or if I was too frozen to move at all. Are you feeling alright, dear? I need your morning caffeine. Yeah, I gotta go. I'll let you go. We'll be home in about an hour. Without saying goodbye, I hung up the phone. The gears in my brain halted as I tried to process what she had just told me. The room that I had spent a week in didn't exist. Suddenly, what had become a safe space felt like a death trap. The walls of safety crashing down right before my eyes. I bolted for the door, threw it open and dashed down the hall. As I skidded around the corner and my toes at the first step, I halted to a stop as the sound of creaking echoed from behind me. I froze as my heart pounded in my ears. Rusted hinges creaked as I stood with my back turned. I still had the chance to run out of the door. It was right down the stairs. But my feet were planted where they stood, and I knew which door had opened. As the creaking came to a stop, I drew a deep breath, swallowed roughly, and slowly turned around. The locked door had finally opened. 
and what it had hidden behind it sent one last numbing chill down my spine. It was the yellow room that I had been sleeping in. I whipped back around and flew down the stairs, almost tripping on my way down. I don't even remember if I shut the door as I flew out of it barefooted. My car key shook in my hands as I rapidly pressed the unlock button. After getting in, I slammed the door behind me and rammed the key into the ignition. I yanked the gear into reverse and sped backwards, nearly reverse T-boning an oncoming car. As I straightened the car out, I shifted it into drive and began flying down the street, leaving skid marks behind me. The adrenaline coursing through my veins kept me awake, as I had survived the drive home. As I pulled into my driveway, I dropped my head against the wheel. I was unbelievably exhausted, but I was finally safe. When I entered my house, the first things I did were toss my keys onto the counter, devour a meal, chug a glass of water, and finally collapse onto my bed. When I woke up from a finally peaceful sleep, I collected my payment from the mailbox and mentioned none of the occurrences to them. I was still trying to process the last thing I saw in that house. I couldn't tell if I had actually been sleeping in that room the whole time, or if the guest room was some kind of extension of it. I couldn't tell if it was revealing itself to taunt me or to warn me. Whatever it was, it knew my curiosity was stronger than my fear, and knew that I needed to know. But I knew that whatever it was, it was feeding off of me each night. And if I got out a second later, it would have taken the skin off my bones. I Buy People's Souls Off the Deep Web Written by Draconox I used to be a normal person. I just want to get that out clear, first of all. Yeah, I had a few strange hobbies. But when this all started out... I was just like your average Joe. One of my strange hobbies was browsing the deep web. It was mostly out of curiosity, let me assure you. I wasn't involved in anything shady, and I also made sure to take adequate precautions. One day, I was just looking at random web pages when I stumbled upon a curious one. Hello there. Are you perhaps interested in buying other people's souls? I've been collecting people's souls for a very long time, and I have a bit extra. It was one of the most basic web pages that you could imagine, with only an address on where to send the Bitcoin to buy one. I laughed when I saw this. I had seen my fair share of scams on the deep web, but this one was new. I went to close the window before something popped up on my screen. Hello there, I see you're browsing my site. My heart nearly froze as I saw it was a chat box, but I was sure these security measures that I had taken were sufficient. Relax. I just noticed that you were going to leave without buying anything. It seems you haven't been convinced on what I'm selling is real. 
why not try a free sample? A simple yes and no dialogue box appeared. Now, I should have clicked no, but in my curiosity, I clicked on yes. It's rather hard to explain what possessing a soul is like. You probably think that a soul is immutable, or indestructible in other words. And well, you'd be right. In that moment, I could tell in my head that I held a single soul. But there was a way for me to manifest it in the real world. It appeared as a tiny ball of light. No longer than the smallest bone in your pinky finger. I reached out to touch it. And a flood of memories entered my head. The soul was of a woman by the name of Alexandra Cortez. She had not had a very happy childhood and had escaped her home when she had turned 16. A few bad decisions involving drugs and she had literally nothing left on her and she was slowly dying. It was here that her memories became less clear. There was a strange shadow that I could see but nothing clearer than that. Mind you, everything else that I could see had been as clear as if I was the one seeing it. But this figure was covered in what I could only describe as dark smog. She had sold her soul to this thing in exchange for money. The rest of her life was rather good, not fantastic by any means but it was so decent in paradise compared to what she had suffered earlier. It all ended one day when she was walking along a dark street corner and a man had ambushed her. She passed that night, though not before hours of suffering. There was far more, of course. I had her entire life in my hands, but I only put down the important bits given her whole biography could fill up as several books. That wasn't all, though. I could hear her thoughts right now. She was pleading, begging me to let her go. Now you're probably wondering what the afterlife is like. Well, I have to confess that I never found out. Just that there was something beyond where souls could go to. After listening to her pleadings, I agreed to let her go. Much as I had said earlier, I can't really explain how I let her go, just that I did. She vanished before me, and the light also went away with her, leaving my mind completely clear. I thought what had happened was just some sort of odd hallucination, or rather... I hoped that that was what it was. I didn't want to believe that there was some monster collecting souls around the internet. That was until four days later when I got an anonymous email linking back to that site. Hello there. I hope you enjoyed your free sample. Perhaps you would like to purchase another. We're having a sale now. The mail confirmed for me that it wasn't some weird fever dream, and after a moment's hesitation, I decided to make an actual purchase. 
I should have realized that something was wrong the moment I saw the prices. They were dirt cheap, which made very little sense given what I learned later on. I got the souls of three more women, and they were quite similar in many ways, much like with Alexandra. I couldn't see the entity that they sold their souls to properly. The amounts of money they got for their souls were quite staggering. I had barely paid way less than a percent of that price. Again, they should have told me that something was off about this whole thing, but I was rather oblivious to the fact then. What I was more focused on was that they had all passed in similar ways by being ambushed by a man. They never saw his face though, but they had all passed in agonizing ways. Letting their souls go free brought a certain peace of mind, kind of like an animal rights activist who buys animals intended for slaughter and then releases them, I guess. I bought another one a few days afterward, and it was here that things took a dark turn. It was the soul of a man named Christopher. I don't want to share his full name here, but that hadn't even been what I had been concentrating on at the time. Now, when I went through the memories of his life, I was sickened by what I saw. This man was a serial killer. Those four women that I told you about earlier, he was the one who had done it to them. He had done it to over 17 more too. The mere thought of it made me want to throw up. Again, I couldn't see the figure to whom he sold his soul to. He hadn't done it for money, no. He had been caught by the police and had exchanged his soul for getting out of jail. Some sort of legal loophole was there because the police didn't document a piece of evidence correctly and he was let go. And he killed again and again. Ten more victims before being caught and given the death penalty. Much like those before him, he begged to be released. But no sort of compassion emerged in my mind. I was sickened by what he had done and appalled that he had suffered so little compared to his victims. In my rage, I took a hold of his soul and wondered what I could do with it. I could now hear him pleading again in my mind, but I ignored that and I lit the stove. I then dropped the small ball of light onto the flame. Oh, he definitely felt that. He couldn't die, but he could feel the flame consume him. I could hear his screams, and though at first I was disgusted with myself, I learned to live with it. This man had no regrets or remorse for what he had done, aside from the fact that he was dead. It became a daily routine for me. I would try to find new ways to mess with him. I would stick him in the freezer. I would stab his soul with a knife. I even thought about buying acid from somewhere to dip him in it, but that would have raised far too many questions. 
I never really considered myself to be a vindictive person. I thought it was because I had been so close to some of his victims, and had felt all that they had felt when they had died that I did what I did. Eventually, I got tired of this after a few weeks and I let him go. In case you're worried, I assure you that he suffered ten times worse than what he had dealt out. I then bought another soul a couple of weeks later. This one belonged to a woman who had killed three of her own children. My heart was hardened from before, and I went about my way making sure that she got what she deserved. It continued like that. Nearly every soul that I bought was some sort of horrible criminal. Soon, my apartment had over two dozen of them. I spent nearly every free waking hour messing with them as much as I could. It was more addicting than anything I had ever tried before. Eventually, I ran into a small roadblock though. The prices for these souls had increased. Exponentially, I should add too. And they were worth right about how much they should have been. I had already released a good number, and was quite frustrated that I couldn't get my hands on some more. I got an email a few days after that. Hey there, champ. Seems that you're a bit short on cash lately, but since you've been such a great customer, I was thinking that you could have a few of them for free. With a few strings attached, of course. I barely even read the conditions as I agreed to it. That was just how much I was hurt. Now, I have over a hundred souls. I spend all of my time dealing with them. It's strange, but I don't think I've eaten something in the past few months. I haven't even gone to work, and I thought that they would kick me out of my apartment for non-payment of rent one day, but they haven't. I have noticed a few changes when it comes to my body as well. There are now two small bumps on the top of my head that won't go away. I've been meaning to go to a doctor, but I haven't really found the time. And my skin has turned a different color as well. And I feel something growing out of my back. But really, I can't be bothered with all of that. A new shipment of souls has come from the website, and I need to get to work on them. I stopped urban exploring after we visited a ghost town called Kilmore. Written by a Certain Emergency 122. After my mom passed away, I began urban exploring, also known as Urbex. It gave me a much-needed escape from our house. Everywhere that I looked, sharp-edged memories threatened to cut me open. The pictures that she had chosen to decorate the walls, or the armchair that she loved to curl up in. Chanel 5 floated through our home, 
an ever-present ghost. More importantly, Urbex transformed the ordinary into the magical. That magic never lasted, but even a few seconds was enough for me. A few seconds to pretend that mom was still alive. I met Charlotte in ninth grade when Mrs. Langdon asked us to do a group presentation on measure for measure. Charlotte's the exact opposite of me, bubbly and outgoing and extroverted, but we bonded over our mutual love for Urbex. Together, we visited the Chester Hudson Quarry, Danvers State Hospital, Clinton Tunnel, and much more. We continuously challenged each other to check out bigger, creepier places, and quickly became best friends. Before Charlotte left to study history at Brown, we agreed that we would meet up during our breaks from college to continue exploring different places. Kilmore was our white whale. We had learned about it before the internet became widely accessible, from a newspaper article that listed all the ghost towns in Massachusetts. At the time, we hadn't been able to find out much more. Admittedly, our efforts had been hampered by my dad. After mom died, his protectiveness multiplied by 100-fold. He became a stereotypical tiger parent, always demanding to know where I went, and insisting that I spent all my free time studying for the SATs, instead of running through neglected buildings. Almost four years had passed since we had first heard of Kilmore. Charlotte was the one who had figured out that it had initially been called Kiltmore when it was first founded which explained why we had had such a difficult time finding out more information about it. Once we had had the town name, we pieced together its history and location. Kiltmore or Kilmore had been found in the late 1600s as an inland settlement. It declined after the American Revolution had ended, and a town called Larton rose into prominence. People built new coastal roads ones that ran right past Kilmore straight to Larton. During the War of 1812, even more people moved away. Rumors surrounded the very last occupants of Kilmore. People accused them of practicing human sacrifice. Charlotte and I decided to explore Kilmore on March 15th, right when our spring breaks coincided. Our phones died as soon as we had entered the town. In retrospect, we should have packed up and left then, but we were too excited, too pleased with ourselves to consider leaving. We had no idea what waited for us there. It was a beautiful summer day, the kind you long for in the dead of winter when cloudless skies and warmth seemed like an impossible dream. We drove up to Kilmore singing along with the yeah yeah yeahs, while Charlotte consulted at Google Maps. I daydreamed about all the amazing photos we would share with the online Urbex community. To the best of my knowledge, Charlotte and I would be the first ones to explore Kilmore. We parked on the hill overlooking Kilmore. When Charlotte turned off the car engine, a thick silence settled in our ears, only broken intermittently by a crow cawing somewhere far above us. Do you have everything? I asked. A respirator, first aid kit, flashlight, water. I knew she did, but we had gotten into the habit of checking with each other before going in. The half-faced respirators were especially important, 
because they protected our lungs from asbestos, mold, and even hantavirus. Yep, I brought some extra food too, said Charlotte. She patted the side of her bulging backpack. And my Canon 5D. Excitement surged through me as we walked down the hill. We had dreamed about visiting Kilmore for so long, and now we were finally here. It looked almost exactly like I thought it would. Nature had reclaimed most of the town, crowning it with wreaths of moss and robes of vines. While some of these stone houses stood tall and unbroken, others had been gutted down to their bones, and trees erupted out of crumbling walls. The largest building of them all stood at the center of the town. A school, maybe. I squinted at it. No, it was a church. The cross, meant to be at the top of the steeple, was missing. My phone vibrated. I looked down and saw that the battery had dropped to 1%, even though I had charged it in Charlotte's car the whole drive up. Weird. I noticed Charlotte checking her phone too. Good thing we hadn't planned on using our phones to take pictures and videos. Did I know then that we should have turned around and run away as far as possible? Not exactly, but I would be lying if I said I hadn't experienced a moment's unease. Partially because of our phones dying, meant that if one of us had an accident here, we wouldn't be able to reach emergency services right away. Mostly though, that sense of unease remained undefined. It was the kind you feel when you're walking down an empty street late at night, and you hear someone's footsteps echoing behind you. By unspoken agreement, we decided to explore the abandoned church first. Our plan was to slowly work our way outwards through the rest of the town. Unlike many of the other buildings, the church seemed relatively untouched by the ravages of time. It was made of grey stone covered with moss, roughly shaped like a pentagon, and had a bell tower from which a single rusted bell hung. I suspected that if it weren't for its missing cross, this church would have looked right at home in a modern small town in New England. The doors to the church opened easily under my touch. The smell hit us right away. It reminded me of the time I had accidentally left a Tupperware full of cooked chicken in the fridge for two weeks. By the time that I had remembered it existed, the smell of spoiled meat after I had opened it nearly made me throw up. I concentrated on breathing through my mouth until I could walk inside of the church without gagging. Although the church had windows, the light streaming through them wasn't strong enough for me to make out our surroundings clearly. I turned my flashlight on and saw a bunch of pews, eight rows of them. They had all been pushed to the side, as though the congregation members had left in a hurry. In the middle of the church, at the center of all the hastily pushed aside pews, was a giant hole in the ground, approximately 15 feet wide. It had rough edges of splintered wood. Fascinated, I moved closer. The darkness inside of it was impenetrable. I had the oddest sensation that there was something down there looking back up at me. I knelt down and tossed in a pebble. I counted until seven before hearing the distant clack that signaled the pebble landed. Eliza, look at this. Charlotte used her flashlight to illuminate a wooden pulpit at the very front of the room past the hole. And cobwebs and grime hid its intricate carvings from view. 
On top of the pulpit sat a stone bust, roughly three feet tall. I trained my flashlight on it. At first, I couldn't make sense of what the sculpture was meant to depict. It seemed to have a human neck and face, but from its mouth upwards, its nose and eyes dissolved into numerous writhing snakes that then spiraled up into two twisted horns. Its mouth gaped wide open. The jaw dislocated in a soundless scream. I looked down to make sure the ground ahead of us was stable. A thick layer of dust covered everything. Except, I aimed the flashlight at the aisle leading to the hole and nearly forgot how to breathe. Footprints disturbed the dust. Small footprints. The footprints of children. So fresh they made that they might have walked through here only seconds ago. Someone's here. Someone's playing a prank on us. Charlotte's voice made me jump. I spun around to see her, staring down at the footprints too. Her voice had been so flat and emotionless that, if I hadn't been able to see the beam of her flashlight trampling wildly, I would have said she was completely unaffected. Yeah, I said, trying to smile at her. They probably thought it would be funny to scare us. Remember the time some idiot dressed up as a mannequin and put it by the hospital entrance? She managed a shaky laugh. Yeah, that scared the crap out of me. Um, is it just me or do you feel like barfing too? Now that you mention it. I hadn't noticed before, too engrossed in looking around, but I didn't feel so hot. My stomach kept folding over itself, sending up waves of nausea. Sweat poured down my forehead and stung my eyes. My respirator was working, I knew that it was. So why was I having such a bad physical reaction to simply being inside of a building? Without warning, the ground started shaking under our feet. I froze for a second, hoping that the church wasn't about to collapse and fall onto us. Let's go, I shouted, hoping that Charlotte could hear me. Fortunately, we seemed to be on the same page. We both backed out of the church and started running back the way that we had arrived. Less fortunately, the ground kept sending us stumbling over our own feet, and we struggled to stay upright. As abruptly as it had started, the earthquake stopped. And that was when the town changed. Everything around us wavered. The buildings flickered for a moment and looked whole and intact again. People streamed out of them. People who wore old-fashioned clothing that didn't belong in the 21st century. The men wore breeches, the women woolen petticoats. Children ran around wearing doublets or gowns. When we had been transported back in time, or more accurately, the town had been transported back in time. Charlotte hissed. This has to be a historical reenactment of some sort. They're actors. Instead of answering her, I said, Come on, follow me. We ran around one of the houses next to the church and crouched down behind it, hopefully out of view. Right in time. The church doors slammed open with a loud thud and people poured in. They had no faces. None of the townspeople had faces. No eyes, no nose, and no mouth. Only a smooth, blank surface. Like dolls that had come to life. But they seemed aware, capable of conscious thought. I watched as a couple of them paused in the street, tilting their heads to one side as though speaking to each other. 
I noticed something else too. There was a procession of townspeople headed towards the church. The elderly led the way. All three of them hunched over. One used a cane to support himself as he hobbled forward. Others followed them. Based on their height, they were most likely middle-aged adults. Teenagers brought up the very end of the procession. The church doors closed behind them. Only young children remained outside. Screams of agony filled the air. They went on and on, horrible and unending. Even clapping my hands over my ears didn't help. I still heard them. After a few minutes, the screams ended and blood poured out from underneath the church doors in a thick flood, soaking into the earth. We both backed away from it rapidly, neither of us wanting to be near it. The ground rumbled underneath our feet, sending us sprawling again. All the children outside of the church keened in distress, dropping to their knees and holding their arms into the air as though they were praying. I looked at their tearless, blank faces, my skin crawling with revulsion. How could they cry or scream without any mouse? I wanted no needed to be back in the car, safely behind the wheel and preferably driving far away from here. There was something very wrong with Kilmore, and I didn't plan on sticking around to see more. Let's try to make it back to the car, I pointed at the surrounding woods. Through there. I tore off my respirator. There seemed to be no point in keeping it on. Cautiously, slowly, we shuffled through the woods, ducking behind trees whenever possible. But right as we had reached the bottom of the hill, between one blink and the next, we were somehow transported back to the house that we had been hiding behind. Disoriented, I stepped forward and collided straight into Charlotte. Her dark brown hair was plastered to her face in sweaty strings. Above the respirator, her eyes showed the same confusion that I felt. What was going on? This time, I didn't bother trying to be stealthy or quiet. Instead, I simply ran for it. Leaping over fallen logs and ducking under low-hanging tree branches, I was certain that I would be able to leave if I just ran fast enough. I knew that I was moving forward, I had to be, but my feet stopped leading me towards the hill on which our cars were parked, or maybe the path itself had changed underneath me. Instead of running away, I ran back towards the house where Charlotte stood. We couldn't leave. I pushed away that realization, the way that you would push away some stranger intruding on your personal space. I didn't want to think through what that meant. Uh, maybe we can ask the kids for help. I instinctively knew that we did not want to draw their attention. No, Charlotte, don't. I lunged for her, but I wasn't quick enough. She had walked out onto the street. Everything about her wildly out of place. From the clothes that she was wearing to the backpack that she held at her side. The children didn't notice her. Hope swept through me. They had no eyes, so maybe they couldn't even see her. But then they started running towards Charlotte, their blank faces shiny and unreadable. She faltered, stopped, and turned to run. She made it about five feet before they converged on her and pulled her down. Someone shrieked loudly next to me. 
I whip my head around to see a young boy leaning out from the open window of the nearby house, pointing at me while he screamed. I hesitated, uncertain. I needed to run, but I didn't want to leave Charlotte behind. The choice was taken from me. Cold hands grabbed my shoulders and arms, dragging me forward. I knew with a sudden flash of terror where they intended on taking us. I struggled against the tiny hands holding me, trying to wrench myself free. I kicked at them, scratched them, even tried to bite them, but they didn't seem to feel any pain. Eventually, I stopped struggling and went limp, letting my legs drag behind me. I hoped that they might drop me, or at least slow down under my weight. Neither happened. They held me with unnatural strength. The church loomed over us. They dragged us inside and I cried out involuntarily. The smell from earlier, that scent of rotten decay was back. And worse, red had been splashed everywhere, all over the floor and onto the walls. The pews had puddles of blood. It even ran from the ceiling, falling on us like warm rain. Thicker things had dripped down as well. Things inside a body that you weren't meant to feel against your bare skin. There was the hole in the middle of the church that we had seen before. It was smaller now, but I still couldn't see how deep it ran. Something in the darkness down there stirred as though it felt my gaze. I tried not to think about the fact that it looked just like a gaping, hungry mouth, one eagerly waiting to swallow us. Charlotte screamed, Please, please, don't do this to us. It was a mistake. We made a mistake. You can't do this to us because of a mistake. The children ignored her. Those who weren't holding on to us dropped to their hands and knees. They abased themselves and made a sighing, whimpering sound. She kept pleading. Please, you have to listen to me. We're sorry and we didn't mean to come here. A voice came out of the hole in the ground. It spoke to me. I don't know what or whom Charlotte heard, but it spoke to me in my mother's voice. Suddenly, I wasn't standing in the middle of a desecrated church covered by red and surrounded by faceless children. I sat on my mom's lap, only my feet sticking out, like when I had been much younger. Her arms held me and I could smell her perfume, Chanel 5, and the clean scent of Dove Soap. Her soft black hair spilled over my face. I tried to swallow past the lump in my throat. I had missed her so much. Tears trickled down my face. Mommy's so glad you made it here, Elisa. She kissed my forehead, leaving a waxy imprint of lipstick behind. I won't leave you again, honey. All you have to do is say yes. The arms tightened around me in a hug, one that hurt. I opened my mouth to say yes. Yes, I wanted to stay here. I never wanted to leave again. And I jerked back. I had been pressed up against her cheek. But instead of that strong, sure heartbeat that I remembered, only silence greeted me. No heartbeat. Eliza, do you hear me? I stared up at my mom and met familiar dark brown eyes. All you have to do is say yes, honey. Say that and you'll always be mine. Say you'll worship me, obey me, follow me. She stroked my hair. We can be here together forever. 
I dug my fingernails into my palms, hard enough that they started to bleed. The pain helped clear my head. I badly wanted to say yes, to stay here with my mom forever, but this wasn't really her. My mom was dead. I watched the realization slide into those familiar eyes. The realization that I knew it was just pretending to be my mom. It can be as real as you want it to be, Elisa. I can be real for you. Look around yourself. There is no death here. The people in this town agreed to stay with me forever. And they always will. It smiled. An awful, vicious smile that didn't belong in my mom's face. I thought I understood. No one in this town could move on. They were stuck repeating these same motions, doing the same things, in an endless loop. Hurting each other, hurting themselves, all in worship of the thing that lived below this church. I shook my head wordlessly. My mom wavered before me, shimmering like a heat haze. Abruptly, she vanished. I opened my eyes to see that I had walked closer to the hole, so close that I could see the faceless children throwing themselves down into it ahead of me. I stumbled backwards. A terrible tearing noise filled the air, the sound of something meaty being ripped apart, the snap and click of enormous teeth. Blood erupted out of the hole in the ground in a vast torrent, chunks of thick, glistening flesh. Shards of teeth and bone exploded into the air and splattered all over me the walls and the ceiling. Everything. Charlotte walked past me. I staggered over to her. Stop it, Charlotte. Stop walking. But she didn't. Not knowing what else to do, I grabbed her by the shoulders and shook her, sending her head snapping back and forth. Charlotte's eyes cleared momentarily. Elisa... What's going on? I feel so strange. She started to move out of my grip. I took a deep breath, stealing myself for what I had to do, and I forcibly dragged her towards the church doors. Each step was a struggle. She clawed at me, screaming, fighting to go back to that mesmerizing voice that had promised her paradise. I told myself to hang in there, that this would all be over soon. I had to tell myself that, or I would have given up and left her there after all. Behind us, the very last faceless child screamed. I looked back even though I knew I shouldn't. I couldn't help it. Something exploded out of the ground, something huge and monstrous that sent slivers of wood flying across the church. I couldn't comprehend what I was looking at. It was like trying to solve a jigsaw puzzle with only a third of the pieces. I caught a glimpse of teeth, needles sharp and utterly inhuman, and enormous horns that spiraled into the ceiling of the church. Whatever it was, it tore apart the child in its grasp. It ripped the skin off her body the way an amorous man ripped off his lover's dress. Flesh red sprayed through the air, and I choked on it, nearly slipping to the ground. As soon as we had stumbled out of the church... Charlotte crumpled to the ground and started to sob. I wondered for a moment if we would even be able to leave, or if we would end up back here no matter how many times we ran away. As if in answer to my unspoken question, the ground beneath us began trembling again, 
The buildings collapsed and disappeared, swallowed up by an enormous fissure in the ground that widened as it raced towards us. I dragged Charlotte up to her feet and we ran for it. She threw one quick glance over her shoulder, her face twisted in misery. I didn't know whose voice she had heard. If we made it out alive, maybe I would ask her. And then I stopped wondering what she had seen because I had to direct all my attention towards putting one foot in front of the other. I could hear my mom again. Knowing that it wasn't really her didn't help. I kept smelling her perfume, feeling her hair slide across my face. I remember my dad telling me that mom had been in a terrible accident, that the injuries had been too severe. Don't leave me, Eliza. Don't leave me to die. I closed my eyes and pictured her standing in front of me again, one hand reaching out to beg for help. No, she wasn't standing. She was falling. Falling back on the hole, tumbling helplessly through the air like a broken doll. The walls and ceiling of the church crumbled and fell on top of her, burying her alive. She'd be trapped on there, left to starve away. She screamed and screamed, and I started screaming too because it was unbearable. I had to make it stop. My mom was dying again. I could taste a Chanel 5 in my throat, could feel the delicate bones in her hands as she squeezed my arm, her fingernails biting into my skin. I had stopped running, stopped moving at all. I vaguely understood that Charlotte was trying to drag me forward, but most of my mind was occupied with resisting the urge to run straight back to the church. If I ran now, I could still make it in time to save her. She wouldn't starve. No, no, no. That thing wasn't my mom. I dropped my hands and knees and started crawling up the hill. It didn't help. I could still see her and soon it became more than just seeing. I was right there with her. The stones crushing my limbs and pinning me still. The dirt smothered me, filled my nose and mouth, and I couldn't breathe anymore. And I heard her crying my name, felt her arms tightened around me for the last time, and a blood-soaked darkness swallowed my world. I came back to myself gradually. I was lying down in the backseat of someone's car, Charlotte's car. I pushed myself up to one elbow and saw Charlotte in the driver's seat her eyes huge and terrified. They flicked up to the rearview mirror and met mine briefly before turning back to the road. Neither of us spoke. I didn't care where we were, or even where we were going, as long as we got the heck away from Kilmore. Charlotte and I drifted apart. For some people, going through something traumatic together forges indestructible bonds. For others, it breaks them apart. We couldn't heal from what had happened together. All we could do was remind each other of the worst moment of our lives. The last I heard, she had dropped out of Brown and moved back home. That was about four months ago and I don't know where she is now. I haven't gone urban exploring since that day in Kilmore. I can't. Every time I step into an unlit building now, even my own apartment, I remember standing in that church and seeing red spurting out of the hole. My chest seizes up and I can't breathe. Not until I turn on all the lights. Worse than that though, 
I dream of my mom almost every single night. Not as she was alive, but as I saw her in Kilmore, buried under mounds of broken stones and pieces of wood and dirt, trapped in a slowly dying, begging me to save her. I reach out to help her, to pull her up, and realize too late that she doesn't have a face anymore. Whenever I wake up from one of these nightmares, I always find myself walking down the road on my way back to Kilmore. So, I wrote this post to warn you. You and everyone else on this forum who loves Urbex, who is interested in visiting ghost towns. Massachusetts has a variety of abandoned places. In addition to the ones that I had mentioned earlier, the Chester Hudson Quarry, Danvers State Hospital and Clinton Tunnel. There's also the North Truro Air Station, Rutland Prison Camp, and Steinhardt Hall. All of them are great places to explore. Just don't go to a ghost town called Kilmore. You won't make it back out. I stopped going on archaeological digs after the Thornton Expedition, written by the General G. I've always thought that the past was never content to stay in the past. It may not be widely spoken about, but it's not content to sit quietly in books or in museum exhibits. When it wants to, it reaches out and grabs you. The only question is what happens next. Sometimes history lets you go, while other times you can feel its fingers tightening their grip. I felt it reach out and grab me on the Thornton expedition in Egypt. We were thrilled when we first found the tomb. When probing the area for about a month, our scanning equipment revealed there was a labyrinth of solid surfaces located deep under the desert surface. So, we set out to find whatever it was, no matter how much time or money it took. It took a while, but our team of diggers eventually uncovered the entrance. And then they sent in drones and other equipment to make sure the site was physically sound, and wouldn't cave in if people stepped inside. Once that was completed, I arrived on site as the digs supervisor. Stepping around mounds of sifted sand, segments of broken walls that had only recently been unearthed, huge bits of digging equipment, and various makeshift buildings dotting the landscape. I felt the earth declining under my feet at an angle as I moved closer towards where my team was gathered. The sand may have been shrinking away, but my excitement was growing with each step. This was the moment you dream about as an archaeologist. You're ready, Galloway. Victor, the site manager, greeted me the moment that I was in earshot. Like the others gathered around, he was decked out in a hard hat and other protective gear. There was no telling how much more of the tomb's structure was covered in sand. The team had unearthed the entrance, but a tomb is a lot like an iceberg or an anthill. What you see is only a fraction of what's truly there. All we knew so far was that the tomb was massive, and it was a pyramid at one point. 
but the top had been weathered away over the centuries. Let's do it. As soon as I was outfitted with the right gear, the team began chiseling away at what looked like the tomb's entrance. Jim Cromwell, our expedition's main photographer, stood poised slightly behind us to capture the moment. We stepped into the entrance. The intense heat from the desert was practically radiating off of us. It was immediately apparent that the tomb was well made, because the heat and sun failed to penetrate the structure. It was actually somewhat chilly inside. The deeper inside that we went, the more it felt like we were leaving the outside world behind. When the entrance faded away behind us, the first thing our flashlights reached were two massive structures of Anubis, made entirely out of black onyx, the smooth stone gleaming slightly from the artificial light. The closer that we got to the entrance, they were flanking, the more it made these statues loom out of the darkness like giants. If I had to guess, I would say they were nearly eight feet tall. Something major was here. I took my time looking around what had once been a pyramid. No matter how many times I set foot in an ancient tomb, I've never lost the sense of awe that I get when taking in these stone walls and the fuzzy humidity. I hope I never do. This was the ultimate time capsule. Endless hallways carved into massive stone blocks, intricate hieroglyphics everywhere you looked, and an occasional statue keeping watch on you as you made your way through the corridors. The excitement inside of me was ready to burst as the crew walked through the main passageway. After about ten minutes, we emerged into a cavernous antechamber that was shrouded in darkness but with my flashlight, I could still see that the walls were covered by hieroglyphics from floor to ceiling. Can we get some lights in here? I called out, and the crew was on it. As within minutes, they were setting up massive industrial lamps that illuminated the words and images sweeping across the walls. Whoever said if these walls could talk had never been here. These walls didn't just talk. They told stories. After a good look around, we went back to our base for refreshments and rest. One of the first things you learn is how quickly you can get dehydrated at working out in the desert. Since it was now the hottest time of the day, it was time to relax until the sun went down. And despite digging in what was ostensibly the cool season in Egypt, we got stuck in the middle of a record heat wave. Lucky us. I carefully stepped around the digging equipment numerous tools and tarps securing the site that we had been digging around for nearly a week, before I climbed the three steps of the trailer and opened the door. A cold wave of air conditioning greeted me, before I grabbed a bottle of water from the fridge next to the sink and took a seat on the leather couch. Looking around me at the state-of-the-art motor couch, I couldn't help but think how lucky we were. Elliot Thornton, our patron, had certainly spared no expense for our expedition. Everywhere you looked confirmed that we had the best equipment, the best experts, and the best of everything. It's a good thing too, because trying to make an expedition like this work on a tight budget is a recipe for disaster. Thornton spent his younger years accumulating a fortune and discovered by middle age that he had more money than he knew what to do with, so he decided why not add a little adventure to his life. 
I could tell that he was living vicariously through us, but that was his prerogative. We all have our little daydreams. Some of us just have more chance to act them out than others. While I sipped my water before I left for the day, I thought about what we had uncovered. When you're spending time in a climate-controlled office somewhere in London, New York, or elsewhere, it's easy to forget how old the world is and how young modern cities truly are. But out here, the beginning of civilization doesn't seem quite so distant. The following day, we went back into the site and began cataloging and exploring in detail. It was just as chilly inside as it was the day before. Since I made sure to dress accordingly, it wasn't an issue. But once we were halfway through the main corridor, the sound of someone screaming suddenly filled the air. It wasn't a startled cry of someone getting spooked. This was a full-throated, top-of-the-lungs shrieking in agony. I flinched and frantically looked around for the source of the screaming but I was shocked to see some of the other crew members looking at me with total uncertainty. Are you okay, Richard? Jim Cromwell asked me, concern plastered all over his face. Didn't you hear that? Hear what? Jim's concerned expression morphed into one of confusion. The scream. What scream? The scream that just happened. It was one of the worst noises I've ever heard. Richard, I didn't hear a scream, but I heard someone laughing. Victor nervously volunteered as he stepped forward to look at me. It was the most unfunny laugh I'd ever heard. Cold and heartless. Like something you hear from a villain in a movie. I thought I was just imagining it, but now I'm not so sure. I didn't hear anything. Jim said as the other crew members silently exchanged concerned looks. I didn't imagine it, and neither did Victor. We all had to undergo extensive physical and mental exams for this trip's insurance policies. I heard a scream. Look, I'm not denying that, Richard, but what do we do about it? Eleanor, the chief translator, asked. I guess, I began. I guess we just wait and see what happens. And go about our job. That's reasonable, Jim nodded. Okay guys, let's get back to it. I tried to ignore what happened as we kept walking on. All around me, the extended expedition team was working, lighting the space with work lamps so the walls and hieroglyphics on them could be photographed and translated. Each wall had been beautifully painted in painstaking fashion. I couldn't wait to get them back to base and to have a better look at them. As we headed down further towards the burial chamber, I could feel it getting colder still. The work light illuminated parts of the hieroglyphics that seemed to go on forever. But eventually, we reached the burial chamber and with that, the team was in position. The excitement practically filled the dusty air. Alright everyone, Victor said. You know what to do. And they went right to it carefully scraping and chiseling their way through the burial chamber seal. When it gave way after about five minutes of careful work, they gingerly guided the heavy wooden doors open. As they opened noisily, the beams from our flashlights found gold and other treasures shrouded amongst dense clouds of dust and cobwebs. 
Carefully stepping inside, our flashlights all found the center of the room, where a gargantuan tan stone sarcophagus filled the space. Not one of us spoke because we were beyond thrilled. This is what every single person in my field hopes to do once in their career. At some point, I watched Jim as he clicked away. His glasses were hanging off of his nose as he tried to capture every angle in view. While he did that, I took in the space as the rest of the crew came in and began to excavate and survey the chamber. Moments later, a few extra crew members came down to open the sarcophagus. Equipped with state-of-the-art tools, they carefully pried the massive lid off the sarcophagus and lifted the gleaming gold mummy case out of the bottom. All in full view of Jim and a cameraman, who were duly recording everything. I felt so many emotions in that moment. This was something that I had worked years for. But my watch told me that it was time to take a break. On the walk back to base, the sun was out in full force and it blasted us with heat the minute that we stepped out of the tomb. As I stepped further away, I could feel the adrenaline that had been humming in my system slowly simmering down, and all my thoughts of the disembodied scream were forced out of my head as we sat down to a lavish meal created by Thornton to celebrate. The lunch was filled with everything you could possibly want, and everyone ate plenty. When it was over, we all gathered at the off-site storage facility where the mummy had been brought after it had been excavated. With an atmosphere like someone opening a highly anticipated Christmas present, Thornton, a short gaunt man in his mid-fifties with a rapidly receding hairline, took his center stage as he watched a few crewmen carefully open the mummy case. It opened with a faint pop, but when the case lid was removed, everyone took in a collective gasp. It was empty. All of us stood there dumbfounded, unsure of what to do. After a painfully long minute, Thornton turned to me. What is this, Richard? I, I don't know, Elliot. I Maybe this is a decoy mummy case. Or maybe the body was stolen before burial. We still have a bunch more of the tomb to explore. Right, well, let me know what you find. He turned on his heel and left without another word. Immediately after this, I led the head members of my crew back to the tomb to try to figure out what the empty mummy case meant. We walked silently through the corridors until we rounded a corner and found a small alcove that we hadn't seen yet. I shined my flashlight down and got the second shock of the day. Lying on the tomb floor was what looked like clothes from the last century. I had no idea how old they were, but they were ragged as they were all torn ripped and in horrible condition. The shoes were the only things that gave away how old the clothes could be. The five members of the crew all silently looked at the site before we all looked at each other. I could feel the questions, but no one seemed able to actually say the words out loud. And then, just as we were about to go back and report what we had found, I heard footsteps steadily approaching from out of sight. 
The footsteps were soft and far different from the heavy, no-nonsense stride of anyone in the crew. But they were steady and slowly approaching us. We all stood there, transfixed on the doorway, waiting to see. With each step, I could feel my hands tightening into fists as we kept our flashlights aimed at whoever was coming our way. I took a deep breath and braced myself when the footsteps were just outside of the passageway. The tension in the group was unbearable, and then the sound stopped just inside the doorway. There was nothing there. No figure, no mummy, no anything. We all began to shine our flashlights in different directions, trying to figure out what was going on. Look! Eleanor pointed at the wall with one shaking hand. When we all pointed our flashlights at the wall, everyone saw a disembodied shadow that belonged to nothing and no one. It was slender with long limbs. What the... Jim tried to say before the footsteps started coming towards us again. But this time, we could see the shadow on the wall moving along with the footsteps. Run! Victor screamed. We all immediately agreed and ran down the other end of the passage. There was none of our lighting equipment on here, so the entire space was cast into shadow. Our shoes crashed loudly on the stone as we ran, and each new shadow filled me with more terror. The lavish hieroglyphics whizzed by in an indecipherable blur. Everyone in the crew kept running through hallways and corridors until we were far away from the area that we knew. My stomach lurched as I realized we hadn't even properly mapped the tomb yet, so none of us had any idea where we were running, which was a dangerous thing even under normal circumstances. So we slowly crept along in a group formation, each of us facing a different direction in the hope that it would protect us. The air in this part of the tomb was sour, and I thought each step one of us took might bring whatever the shadow was right towards us. Our footsteps were painfully loud on the hard floor, so each step made me wince. By now, I was soaked with sweat, so my flashlight was slick and hard to hold onto. We eventually found a new corridor that seemed to go on for a mile and managed to rest for a moment. What do we do? Jim asked once he was able to stop coughing. We use our heads, I muttered. Let's look around and see what's going on here. The space that we were in was silent for a few minutes while we all looked around. There wasn't much in this corridor aside from a few large statues of Anubis, facing away from the passage that we had just come through, and a large seal on the floor near it. Wait a minute. Weren't there massive statues of Anubis right near the entrance of the tomb? I looked at the group. That's right, Eleanor nodded. They're huge. I think they're guarding the entrances to this place, and they're here to keep something in. That might be why the mummy wasn't in the case. You just might be right, Galloway, Bill, the crew geologist, said. So, if every entrance to this place is guarded by Anubis... Does that mean there's an exit around here? I think so. It's gotta be around here somewhere. I pointed my flashlight toward the wall. 
We all began poking and prodding it to find an exit. After a few long minutes, Eleanor poked a spot on the wall to create. The entire crew ran towards it and began to push. With some effort, it gave way and a blast of hot air greeted us, as we were face to face with a sand dune that came up to everyone's waist. The relief was palpable as all of us stepped into the fresh air at once. But just as we were outside, I heard a faint thud from just inside the passage, flanked by the Anubis statues. Everyone collectively turned to look, and I saw the distant shape of what looked like a hand wrapped in ancient linens lying on the floor. Without another word, we all ran straight back to the dig headquarters and told them what we had found. Everyone sat there stunned, unable to believe what we said, but when they went back to look for the mummy, it was exactly where we last saw it. Then, I immediately resigned from my position on the Thornton expedition, as did everyone who had been in the group. Thornton was a gentleman over it and knew better than to argue with me, but he didn't give up the expedition itself easy. On the flight back home, which Thornton let everyone use as a private jet for her, we watched live news footage of an accident that had taken place at the site that we had all just resigned from. Eventually, even Thornton called it quits. Right before everyone boarded the flight home, I went to a local vendor and bought each person a statue of Anubis about the size of a lawn ornament. I didn't need to tell anyone to put it in their house by the front door. I keep mine there to this day. Aside from its actual purpose, it's a great piece of decor and is far more interesting than the usual coat rack. I also resigned my position as a field archaeologist and took up a university job teaching archaeology. I also was offered a position at a museum, which I accepted. But despite my new job, I know that someday someone else will find the tomb again. History never remains buried for long. I found an old cell phone on my bus ride home. I should have never turned it on. Written by Kyle Harrison I had just sat down for my ride home on the late charter bus when I felt something odd under my seat. It was like sitting on a lump. It wasn't too big, but it was definitely uncomfortable. Instinctively, I reached under to try and remove the object, and my hand touched something familiar. The small size and glint of plastic told me it was a smartphone, but not a brand I was familiar with. Someone must have left it here by accident, I thought to myself. Since I had little time until my stop, I unzipped my backpack and took out my portable charger. As luck would have it, the plug fit, and immediately the phone began to charge. I watched it the way that you might watch a kettle, waiting for it to boil. I don't know why. I didn't really expect to be able to unlock it, but part of me was hopeful that there wasn't a passcode. Five minutes later, it powered up and made a grinding noise like an old modem would. 
I grabbed it up and waited to see what secrets were within. The screen was completely black, no background at all, and the time was definitely off, as though it hadn't been updated in some time. Even the year was wrong. How long had it been here? There was no reception, and it didn't look like I could unlock it, so I just set it back down and focused on my own phone. And then I heard the distinct sound of a text message notification. Was it coming from the older phone? That shouldn't have been possible, I thought, as I picked it back up and saw in short succession there were dozens of messages. All from the same person, apparently. Immediately, I did my best to read them in rapid response. Where are you? Why aren't you responding? Is everything okay? Don't go through with it. That message stuck out to me as I kept reading and scrolling toward the beginning of the story to try and figure out exactly what was going on. Hey, glad we could finally exchange numbers. Call me anytime. Anna. Wow, thanks for actually responding. I was beginning to think that no one actually saw me these days. Craig. Anna and Craig. These two sounded like lovers and I was about to get all the juicy details of the relationship, I thought. This must have been Craig's phone. And he kept everything about Anna on here. I saw that he had no other contacts in his phone, which was a little strange. Next, I decided to check pictures. There were several taken at strange angles, all on the same day of the same person. It looked like he had taken the photographs on his phone right here on this bus. Did he frequently travel this route too? It felt strange to imagine sitting where someone else had and knowing exactly what it was they had been doing. Instinctively, I glanced up to see if maybe the woman in the pictures was on the bus today. I'm not sure how freaked out I would have been if that had been the case, but I breathed a sigh of relief when I realized, besides myself and a few other riders, the bus was empty, and none of them resembled the woman in the pictures. As I scrolled back in time on his phone, I saw that he had taken at least a hundred pictures of her, maybe more. This was bordering on obsession. And then I saw in his notes things that he had said about how he felt about her, even before they had actually exchanged numbers. This is what the phone's note said. I saw a woman on the bus today. Something about her stood out as different than any other I have seen before. Have you ever heard of soulmates? Well, I guess I got a funny feeling when I saw her, and I'm wondering if maybe that's it. She's very beautiful, so much so that I doubt she would want to be with anyone like me. I know that you would say I should take a leap of faith, but look where that got me. What if she rejects me, 
or worse, decides not to respond. I paused there in the notes, wondering who it was that Craig seemed to have faith in. There was scarce else to find on the phone. It was too old for there to be social media or anything like that. And besides the myriad of photos of the woman, the only thing I really had in chat was his call log. Of course, the thought of it made me feel like I was already invading this stranger's privacy too much. But something about this conversation was intriguing. I needed to know what had happened. I pulled up recent calls and saw that the same number had tried to call him over and over. And then it finally hit me how long this phone had apparently been sitting here. Six years. It seemed impossible. But what happened next was even more so. The phone let out a ping again. A new message. How could that be? I slowly reached for it. Unknown. Do you think you know me? Again, I felt uneasy even reading the message or daring to respond. It was a private number, so I figured that it was pointless to do so. And I immediately put the phone down, trying to ignore the next message coming in. Maybe you should keep reading. See what happened with Anna. I went back to the text messages, my eyes nervously scanning the bus. Was Craig on the bus watching me? The notes continued. I finally worked up the nerve to get her to notice me, and we hit it off immediately. I'm so excited. We exchanged phone numbers. This is exactly the lucky break that I've been looking for. At last, patience has finally paid off. The text messages also seem to show a story of a despairing man that didn't get recognized for anything. Hey Craig, are you doing okay? I wanted to invite you to drinks, but I wasn't sure if you had the time. Oh, I appreciate it, but I really can't go, Anna. I have a lot of work to catch up on. But his notes told a different story. How I wish that I could have a life with her. The things we could do together. But that isn't how it's meant to be. She won't understand the things I have to do. You would understand, of course. You always knew what I was capable of. What exactly was Craig planning? Another message chimed in from unknown. Please tell me you have seen where this is headed. I can see the worry on your face. You think I hurt her. This time, I decided to respond. If you didn't hurt her, then why are all these text messages sound so obsessed with her? And the pictures. You were stalking this woman. And if I didn't know any better... I would think that you are stalking me. Don't be ridiculous. You are nothing like her. True, you will be just as interesting to follow and watch. But Anna was special. She really wanted to help me. What are you? I dared to ask. 
I knew there was no way this old phone should have been working or providing messages without surveys. But the text had already convinced me this was not an ordinary conversation. Something beyond the realm of my worldview that was now creeping to the forefront. I went back to the text messages. The more I read, the more disturbed I was by Craig. I'm worried about you, Craig. I always see you sitting alone on this bus. If it wasn't for that phone, I would think that you were dead. You don't need to worry. I'm fine. But I appreciate the concern. It's been a long time since anyone has really worried about me. You promise me that you're okay. Of course. I'll be fine now that you're with me. The only time that I'm with you is when we travel on this bus together. Why don't you ever want to come with me? I told you before that I can't. Why don't you just leave it alone? I'm starting to think that you're trapped on this bus. If that were truly my only concern, it would be to get out of here. I wouldn't be wasting my time getting to know you. A few more days of messages like that scrolled by, Anna growing more and more concerned. And then, an awful truth started to come to light. Craig, how long have you been searching for someone? What do you mean? I was doing some research on this bus, trying to figure out why you were so familiar. I realized that I read your story when I was a little girl. Anna, stop. Stop talking about this. No, I need to know. Are you... Are you dead? I froze, rereading the message. Maybe she had misunderstood. And then he gave a reply. Of course I'm gone. That's why it's been so difficult to explain things to you. I don't want you frightened. The moment I read the message, a mere image of that same message popped on screen. Craig was repeating what he said to Anna. I don't want you frightened. Too late for that. I was terrified because of the fact that I was now apparently texting a ghost. What do you want from me? I asked. The same thing I wanted from Anna. I needed her to leave this place. But she wouldn't listen to me. Maybe you will. I took out my phone and quickly did a search history on this bus the same way Anna had Specifically, I was looking for tragic events surrounding this route. It didn't take long to find one from only six years. The same time as the text messages. Local woman jumps from a moving bus. Anna Fitzgerald. A local real estate agent has been found dead near the corner of Forth and Pine. Witnesses claim they heard her talking to herself or to an unseen person. She frequently told to leave her alone. Before she leapt from the bus to her death when it was moving at approximately 75 miles per hour. I texted Craig. Did you make her jump? Of course not. I didn't want that. 
but once she understood that I was going to try to be with her, she overreacted. You were going to be with her. You mean possessing her body. There was a long pause and I got a chill in the air. The phone was how he found his victims. I understood that now. He left it here for a curious passerby like me to find. I stood up and pulled for the cord that would make the bus stop. The phone pinged again. You can't leave me here on this bus. I won't let you. I have been here too long. I tossed the phone and tried again to get the bus to stop, but it only sped up. I felt something overpower my body. I knew that it had to be the spirit from Craig trying to enter my very soul. We were coming up to a curb. If I timed it right, I could jump and survive. I moved toward the front of the bus as it began to slow down to pick up passengers. Now was the chance to escape. I rushed to get off. Even as the spirit overwhelmed me and I fell down, slamming into the concrete. But somehow I made it, and I was free from the strange encounter. I stood up, wiped blood from my lip as I turned to watch the bus roll off. The passengers had all acted like they couldn't see me, likely a side effect of his demonic influence. But as I turned away, I saw Craig's ghostly presence standing there, glaring at me. Somehow, I was lucky to survive. I saw him pick up the old phone in his hand, and then slide it under another seat, waiting for another victim to be curious enough to find it. A secret government experiment is going on in the back rooms of Starbucks Coffee. I'm one of their first subjects. Written by Trash Atia. Ten, nine, eight, seven, seven, seven. There's something in my head. I think I've done a bad thing. Tell me I haven't done a bad thing. I keep losing time. Ten hours. It's always ten hours. What I lost comes back to me in nightmares that I can't decipher. I'm strapped to a bed. I can't move. I can't scream. There's something sharp. The point of a needle getting closer and closer to me. It's been nearly two weeks since my interview at Starbucks Coffee. I'm sure the video I was made to watch as part of my induction did something to me. It's done something to my head. That's why I'm losing time. Why I feel like I'm losing myself. Whatever happened to me and the other interviewees at the back of the Starbucks coffee, it's rooted itself into the back of my head. I'm counting all the time. I wake up counting. I fall asleep counting, but I don't know why. I don't know why because most of my day has been torn from me, and I'm left with fragments that I'm trying to piece together, like a jigsaw puzzle. I'm sorry if this doesn't really make any sense. 
I can barely decipher my own memories, and what I have managed to salvage is coming out like incoherent babbling. I'm trying to write as calmly as I can, but I don't have much time. I don't know how much time I have, because I should be doing something right now. I should be somewhere else, not here. The voices in my head, the ones that hurt me, the ones that tell me to come back from 10, they're pulling on my thoughts. They're in my head. They're in my head. They're in my head. I've lived out seven days since I initially posted here, and I can barely remember any of them. I can remember small things like eating breakfast with my roommate and grabbing milk from the store. I can remember phone calls with my mother, but the rest of it, it's gone. I don't remember going to class. I don't remember going to work, but I must be because there's always an empty Starbucks cup on my bedside. Just like a reminder, my name scrawled on the front in black marker pen. It's my handwriting. Always a triple venti, half-sweet, non-fat, caramel macchiato. I don't remember writing it. I don't remember a lot of things and it's starting to drive me crazy. My life is being sucked down a plug hole and I can't get it back. Whatever I'm doing now, I know that it has something to do with Starbucks. It has something to do with Anna and the video that she had forced me to watch. Yesterday, I awoke counting to that same noise, the one that had ripped into my brain when the grinning woman on the video had been crawling inside of my head, seeping into my thought process and slowly taking control. I was on the floor, curled into myself. My body ate, like I had willingly thrown myself through a meat grinder. It took me several seconds to fully come to. I was on my back in the same clothes from the day before. They felt filthy, sticking to my palmy skin. I stared at the ceiling for a moment, trying to get control of my own mind, my own lips, but I was still mouthing numbers. 10. I squeezed my eyes shut and tried to think of something else, anything else, but the countdown was cemented in my brain. 9. When I tried to force my lips into my control, the opening of a song that I liked, a poem I had written in my sophomore year of high school, the numbers took over. 8. I shook my head. 7. I waited for 6, but 6 never came. Instead, my lips kept going in flocks, mouthing the same number. 7, 7, 7. When I sat up, dazedly blinking through morning sunlight, I glimpsed something on my bed. A tiny camera. Next to it was a USB cable and my laptop sitting idle. The last thing I could fully recall was helping my roommate drag in a sofa that she had bought off of Craigslist. But even that was blurry. My bedroom was dark. The bedside lamp I normally kept on all night was off. My jacket was flung on the bed, next to the laptop, and bizarrely, my phone was on the other side of the room. Leaving my phone to charge, I set up the camera. It was brand new, but I had no memory of buying it. 
When the device pinged on my laptop, I double-clicked, and whatever footage I had managed to record had popped up. What looked like the reflection of an eye shrouded in darkness. I was about to press play when my bedroom door flung open. My roommate Cass was poking her head through. She looked half asleep, blinking through dark hair hanging in her eyes. Aren't you supposed to be at work? Cass's voice was a soft croak through a yawn. Her gaze fell on the laptop and the camera in my lap. What are you doing? I shut the laptop. Work? My gaze went to the empty Starbucks cup sitting on my bedside table. A job, I thought. I had a job I couldn't remember going to. The last time I remembered stepping foot in the coffee shop was the night of my induction. After that, I had slept for three days. Though I was starting to wonder if I had really been sleeping. I was living a whole life without even knowing. Maybe I was crazy. I thought dizzily. My aunt had a brain tumor. What if that was what this was? I could vaguely remember being 16 and googling the symptoms, pulling up a WebMD page. Memory loss, confusion, headaches. I wasn't sure about hallucinations, but could that really be it? I thought. Had everything I had seen been some mismatched delusion? Yeah, work, Cass said, snapping me out of it. And considering how obsessed you are with this new job, I figured you would have been gone by now. Oh, I'm not obsessed, she scoffed. Uh-huh, I personally believe you've been brainwashed. It's the only logical explanation. That was ironic. Cass cleared her throat when I didn't answer. Hey, Earth Tamaki, are you okay? Yeah, I lied. What time is it? She shrugged. Half eight. You were supposed to be at work like half an hour ago. Cass caught her brow. Funny. You don't seem to care this morning. Which is weird since you practically live there with all your new friends. I ran my fingers through my hair. It felt like straw. Live there. Yeah. Rolling her eyes and my roommate scowled. You're barely at home. Didn't you get back late? Aren't you tired? I had to think about that. Was I tired? I felt like crap, sure. My head was pounding and my body ached. But I wasn't tired. Before I could answer her, Cass shot me a smile. Just promise me, okay? Don't go dump college for some barista job. It might seem fun right now, but you need to think long term. It's just something to think about. Cass. She cut me off, disappearing back down the hall. You're gonna get fired if you don't move your butt. Shuffling off my bed, I stretched. My mouth was dry, like I hadn't drank in hours. Can you make me coffee? I'm half naked, came her squeaked reply. It's not like I wanted to go to work, but I did want to know what was going on. I wanted to know why hours of my life were being sucked away, and I was left with splintered pieces. Pieces that really didn't matter. The nightmares bled back into the forefront of my mind. Starched white walls in the ceiling. Intense golden light blinding me. Gloved fingers curled around a scalpel, which was inching closer and closer to me. 
They didn't feel like the night terrors that I had as a kid. The ones that I could brush away. These ones felt real. Like they had happened. My Starbrooks induction was still playing in my head. The test with mind-bending questions that messed with my psyche. And the coffee I was sure Anna had drugged to lower my inhibitions. Whatever she had subjected me to was causing my blackouts. But what exactly had the video done to me? The question enveloped my thoughts while I showered quickly, changing into fresh clothes and grabbing my bag. I was stepping out of my apartment, a dry piece of toast hanging out of my mouth, my hands and my hair trying to tie a decent pony, when a figure loomed into view. The guy was leaning against the doorframe, no longer in a bright yellow hoodie. He wore a fitted jacket over his shirt and jeans, a pair of Ray-Bans with slit, dark brown hair in the back. Finally, he said in a breath. His expression was bright, but I noticed dark shadows under his eyes. His cheeks had a pallid look to them, like they were drained of color. We started work like an hour ago. I was speechless for a moment. It was one of the other interviewees. Your... I dug for a name, but my mind was blank. The guy's lips curved slightly. Sam, he said. You've forgotten my name already, huh? Ouch. No, I started to walk, quickening my pace. Sorry, I'm a brain blank. He shrugged, sticking to my side. Hey, it happens to the best of us. I knew him. That's what my mind was telling me, at least. I had been working with him for a week. When I raked my brain, however, there was nothing. Even when part of me knew of laughing with him about TV shows none of us watched. Kicking through fall leaves on the way to work. And awkwardly asking him to fix the coffee machine for me. So many memories and none of them felt right. How do you know where I live? And the words were spewing out of my mouth before I could stop them. I took quick steps down the apartment block stairs, eager to lose him. I expected my sour tone to scare him off, but Sam was right behind me. Um, we walked to work together, he said, when I pushed open these swinging doors leading outside. The street was alive with the morning rush hour, and I was grateful for it. Sam followed me as I pushed through a group of school kids. He was practically breathing down my neck. Also, you're late. Our boss is having an aneurysm. You mean Anna? I said breathlessly, and he responded with a scoff. The cool breeze was a relief on my cheeks, blowing my hair from my eyes. When I crossed the road, I glimpsed something at the corner of my eye. At first, I thought it was a dog, but it was way too small. When I got closer, fastening my pace, I realized that I was seeing a rabbit. A small white rabbit in the middle of the sidewalk. I blinked rapidly, but it was still there. It was the rabbit that I had seen after I had taken the test at the job induction. Sam was talking, I realized, but his voice had collapsed into white noise. He was talking about work. Something about a ring getting stuck in the trash disposal and an argument with Rich. I couldn't concentrate on his words. All I could see was the rabbit. It looked so out of place. 
A piece of my own personal nightmare sitting on a mundane street of gray on a weekday morning. I had to know if I was losing my mind. When I edged forwards, the rabbit turned and started to bounce across cracks in the walk, hopping between people's legs. It wasn't real, I told myself. Except that it was. It was real. I was staring at it and it wasn't wavering or blurring out of view. Before I could hesitate, I was catapulting into a run. I was aware of Sam yelling my name, but my attention was on the rabbit. I couldn't stop myself, like my body had a mind of its own. I was counting again, my lips mouthing each number. The pain in my head was back, cruel slicing into the back of my skull. It felt like something was there, protruding into my brain. Ten. I threw myself into a sprint. Nine. The rabbit didn't move for a second, waiting for me to get close enough for my fingers to graze the back of its fur. Eight. I was closing in, tearing down the walk, bumping shoulders with people whose responses were like gibberish. I could hear them, but I also couldn't. They were like Sam. Incoherent. Seven. My lips burned with the number like it was poison in my tongue. Seven, I remember thinking. Why couldn't I get past a seven? Watch out! A voice was yelling, but I couldn't concentrate on it. I couldn't concentrate on anything but the number seven and the rabbit in my reach. I was so close. A dull fog settled over my vision. My head starting to spin like I was going round and around in a carousel. I was back in the white room with the TV in front of me. The presenter was on screen. Her smile stretched across her face. Very good. Her screech was rooted inside my head. Now, how do we make a mocha again? I could hear myself reply. My voice and emotionless drawl symphonizing with the others. The memory took me off guard and I almost went flying. Though seeing more of what had been torn from me only gave me more incentive to catch the rabbit. They had messed with my head, I thought. They had drugged me and then screwed with my head, making me see rabbits, making me question my sanity. I pumped my arms faster and had my hands stretched out to scoop it up when something flew past me, tearing the breath from my lungs. The air seemed to turn boiling hot, fumes hitting me in the face. Warm fingers wrapped themselves around my wrist in a tight hold and yanked me back. Reality contorted back into focus. I was standing in front of a main road, cars flying past. Commuters were frowning at me, like I was crazy. I had just chased after an imaginary rabbit in broad daylight. I was crazy. Sam was bent over and gasping for breath, his hands on his knees. Okay, whatever you're smoking, please hand it over. I shook my head, my cheeks burning. Did you see that? Was all that I could choke out. See what? He straightened up. You mean your attempt to isekai yourself? Yeah, I did then. There was. I trailed off, looking for the rabbit. But I was just looking at empty air. What? Sam spluttered. What did you see? Instead of answering him, I stayed silent, 
Maybe that was the best. I wouldn't say it was a comfortable silence because Sam kept whistling in odd intervals before stopping abruptly. It was jarring. You know, the way that he whistled. Like each melody meant something. A youngish woman walked by pushing a stroller. But when I looked closer, it was empty. There was a blanket and toys, but no baby. Swallowing something warm climbing up the back of my throat, I focused on Sam. He let to be in deep thought, his gaze flicking to each passerby in quick succession. I noticed that he looked nothing like the guy that I had met on the night of our induction. He had hid under a yellow hoodie and didn't want to be seen. This guy seemed to full body scan every person that passed him with a simple glance. Sam, saying his name, felt a mixture of wrong and right like I knew him, but at the same time I didn't. I wanted to know then. I wanted to know if Sam was seeing the same stuff as me. If he was going crazy too. His gaze snapped to me. Yeah. Are you blacking out? That's a weird question to ask after jumping in front of a truck. Are you? I pressed. Sam shrugged, kicking through a pile of fall leaves scattering the sidewalk. Not that I know of, he murmured shoving his hands into his pockets. I pass out of work sometimes, but that's the night shift. It messes with my head. There isn't a night shift, I said. I knew that because I'd been on a late night coffee run during finals. The place was closed. I had even knocked on the door. So, if the store was closed, what the heck was I doing all night? Sam shot me a look and dug in his jacket for a pack of cigarettes and pulled one out, lighting it up. For new employees, they're extending the opening hours. You know, it's for our training. Anna told us like a thousand times. Nodding slowly, I followed his words. Right, so we work all night. Yeah, he took a drag. Seriously, what's going on? I'm fine, I said dismissively. Do you remember the night of our interview? Sure, we watched that training video. And the test, I added. Sam looked confused for a moment before nodding. Oh yeah, that weird test. Yeah, freaky stuff. Right? I asked. So what I'm saying is, what if the test in the training video did something? Like emotionally drain us. Sam chuckled through another drag. I lowered my voice. No, I mean actually doing something to us. Like controlling us. Sam laughed, but not a quiet laugh. A proper laugh, throwing his head back, his Ray-Ban slipping over his eyes. He pushed them back up. Oh yeah, absolutely. Anna is a hothead. After several shifts, I'm convinced she wants us to be some kind of supersonic barista for us. He sent me a grin. Who needs sleep, right? Not us. No, you don't understand what I'm saying. I gritted out. I'm losing time. I'm losing ten hours every night. And I don't even know what I'm doing. I choked out a laugh which died in my throat. You keep telling me that I'm working with you and that we're colleagues. But since the night of our induction, I have no memory of working. It sounds like you're burnt out, Sam shrugged, stepping over cracks on the sidewalk. Burnt out? Yeah, like I said, we've been doing long shifts. Hey, I can relate. 
I mean, we've been working the night shift for a week now and Anna is working us like dogs. So, we're all bound to lose ourselves at some point, you know? He shrugged with a smile. Breast is mad. We're humanity's obedient people with a meager wage. His ignorance was driving me crazy. How could he be so dismissive? He remembered the test and the training video, so it didn't make any sense that he seemed unfazed by everything we had been forcibly subjected to. And what about class? I demanded. Hmm? Class, you're a student. Sam's expression changed drastically, his eyes prickling with confusion. It almost looked like he was awakening from a trance, like the fog over his eyes was clearing, even if it was just for a moment. Class, he murmured, his tone soft and whimsical. I haven't been to class in a while, actually, which is weird. In fact, I was going to. I was going to do something. His expression twisted, like he was trying to remember but was finding nothing. That's what I'm saying, I whispered. Sam, they did something to us. He shook his head, seemingly snapping back to normal. Nah, we're just tired, Sam nodded, as if reassuring himself. Yeah, we're tired. We're tired, and that's why I forgot about it. About class. We're tired. His voice reminded me of my own during the training video. I shoved him hard. So, you remember what we did last night? I gritted out. You remember the whole night? He hummed. Yeah, it was pretty dead so Anna taught us how to make frappes. And you should know, you spilled one all over yourself and snapped at a customer. His gaze snapped to me. You remember that, right? I didn't answer him. I couldn't answer him because I had no idea what the heck he was talking about. When the two of us finally walked through the swinging doors into Starbucks, I found myself overwhelmed by the warm glow in the store. Sam was back to his usual chipper self. It was fairly busy, a queue of around seven or eight people. Sam ushered me behind the counter and I had no idea what to do or where to go. The other two interviewees were working. The girl with the pretty blonde hair had her back to me blending fruit on the counter while the red-haired boy was taking orders at the front. Neither of them spoke to me. Sam flung his jacket in Anna's office and put his apron on before throwing me mind. I felt his sixth sense of deja vu being back in her office. The four chairs were still there, though her desk was a lot tidier. All the paperwork from last time was gone, her laptop sitting idle. I found myself staring at it before Sam grabbed my arm gently. Okay, so you can start with orders or Ben will be on you. His laugh was light. You know how much he hates talking to customers in the morning, so he's pretty upset. Also, you need to put out prices for the raisin cakes, and we don't have any left. Upset is an understatement. The girl said, her tone sing-song as she reached on her tiptoes to grab a fresh batch of fruit. She moved in sync with the song on the radio, sidestepping to the beat. I found it hard to believe that she was so lively and it wasn't even 10am yet. When I moved past her, she shot me a grin, though it quickly fizzled out. What's up with you? Luna, I remembered her name. This time, her blonde hair was in a neat pony, 
sticking through her Starbucks cap. And when Sam hurried past us, carrying a tray of donuts, she nudged him with her elbow. What's up with her? He shrugged. Tired, I guess. He caught my eye. Oh, orders, Maki. Don't just stand around. So, Sam was a control freak. I quickly came to realize. I nodded dizzily, trying to tie my apron with trembling hands. Sam wandered off to who knows where, and I ended up taking orders. It wasn't as hard as I thought. As soon as I had the notebook and pen in my hand and was actively asking people what they wanted, my hands worked on autopilot, like I already knew what to do. A girl around a few years younger than me was next, but she ignored me. Her gaze flicking to Ben who was struggling with the coffee machine. Could I get a raspberry smoothie? The girl slid over five dollars. I'd only known Ben maybe half an hour and I could tell that he wasn't a morning guy. Luckily, Sam took over the coffee machine problem. Sure. Ben nodded at the girl and took the cash. See this? Sam mocked a narrator while he tinkered with the machine. Is it Ben? It is natural habitat. If you look closely, you'll see his intention of ignoring the female's advances. In fact, a Ben has been shown to ignore advances from the male and female. He's baffling scientists everywhere. See, look. Here's a demonstration. The way the girl was leaning into the counter, trying to expose as much cleavage as possible, made it inherently obvious what she really wanted. When Ben dumped a smoothie in front of her with way too much force, her lips quirked into a smile. Could I get a straw? She was talking directly to him when Sam and I were right there. Sam nudged me. See? Nothing. Nodding, Ben grabbed a straw and pierced the top. Enjoy. The girl hummed. Could I maybe get a number, too? Ben leaned on his fist. Fifty-six, he grumbled. His gaze snapped to a young kid in the queue. Next. The girl's mouth opened slightly like she was going to say something before she turned and stalked out. Wow. Sam straightened up. That was brutal. Luna laughed, her back to the three of us while she prepped fruit. It's like he's oblivious. Thanks. Ben rolled his eyes and turned to me with his arms folded. Look who finally decided to turn up. He wasn't smiling, but there was a gleam of playfulness in his eyes. I knew it. At least that's what my brain told me. Ben. Sam worked like a robot, his hands doing seven things at once. Somehow. Be nice. What, I am nice. The redhead rolled his eyes. Man's the accent, Luna chirped. The deadpan tone doesn't help either. You're a deadpan tone. Ben ducked his head when the others started laughing, but I could definitely see the ghost of a smirk on his lips. My morning shift went surprisingly well. I knew where everything was and I could make drinks without even thinking. The wrongness of it all kept coming over me. How unnatural it was to suddenly be talented at something that I had no memory of doing. But I fell into a daze, enveloping in symphony with the others. It's weird. It's like my brain refused to stop, refused to take a break. When I wasn't doing something, I was looking for something else to do. 
I made drinks that I couldn't even pronounce and talked with the other three like we had been friends our entire lives. It was wrong. A tiny voice in my head kept murmuring. Except I was always working with noise. Whether that was the screeching of beans being blended or the radio blasting indie hits. I was serving a customer around early evening when I glimpsed that all-too-familiar ball of white behind the window. A woman ordered two espressos and I made them with shaky hands. Turning back to server, I could see the rabbit at the corner of my eye. I looked away to put cash the customer had given me in the register, but when I risked a glance back, it was in the store just behind two teenage girls. Again, it was so out of place. So wrong. The world was going on around me in a blur and yet all I could see, all I could concentrate on, was the rabbit. It was getting closer every time that I looked away or blinked. Leaning forward, I squinted to see if once again I was seeing things. I couldn't be but nobody else was seeing it. Nobody else was pointing it out. Which meant I really was a freaking crazy I thought. I was losing my mind. Maki, Sam's hand was on my shoulder suddenly. When I twisted around to look at him, he was practically bouncing on the heels of his shoes impatiently. Are you okay? Customers are waiting. Two coffees. The man wasn't even looking at me. His gaze stuck to his phone. When he did look up, his lips were moving, but I couldn't tell what he was saying. Instead, I was looking for the rabbit. It was inches from the counter staring up at me with beady eyes. I squeezed my eyes shut and wandered away, but it was still there. The others were working behind me. I was aware of Sam taking over my order and Ben lecturing Luna about something, except all the sound had been sucked away, leaving just my own breathing. I felt my arms fall to my sides. I couldn't breathe. The time I thought suddenly... What was the time? I don't know why the words were in my head, scattered like alphabet soup, but they pushed their way to the forefront of my mind like they had always been there. I looked for the time. I was used to looking at the clock above the door. When I glanced back at it, however, the numbers looked backwards, warped, wrong. I stumbled back with a sharp cry and grabbed for my phone in my pocket. When I looked at the time on my home screen, it was the exact same. Wrong. The numbers were distorted and blurry like I was underwater. I dropped my phone. I knew that I had dropped it because I felt it slip from my fingers. The world seemed to fall away before my eyes. The ground was torn from beneath me and I was falling. I wasn't sure where. I could still hear the soft thump of the radio blasting. And voices... Except I was somewhere else. I was somewhere I wasn't supposed to be. A place far away from my reality. Far away from what I believed in. White walls, a silver ceiling. I was moving fast. The walls were flying by in a dizzying deluge that I couldn't comprehend. And my stomach was diving into my throat. I couldn't move. Something was restricting my arms and legs. There are voices around me that were drowned in white noise. When I opened my mouth to cry out, cold hands shoved my head back down. Figures. 
I glimpsed figures dancing around, silhouettes bleeding into the shadow. I was pushed through doors that looked familiar, and yet I had never seen them before. Someone was looming over me, another faceless shadow prodding and poking me with sharp fingernails. The shadow spoke, but I couldn't understand what they were saying. Their lips moved, but only gibberish came out. No, 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 no. Get off me, get off me. A panicked cry slipped into my ears. I knew it. When I lifted my head, straining from the Velcro straps pinning down my torso, a guy was dragged past me. I knew from the flash of red curls caught in the dizzying light who it was. It didn't look like him. Not the guy that I had just been working with. There was something wrapped around his head, spotted different shades of red. A bandage. Ben was being carried by two people in white. He was struggling and dragging and kicking his feet. His arms were tied behind his back. I couldn't see his face. When I tried to see it, I only saw a distortion. I only saw what my brain wanted me to see. I saw his feet, filthy and dirty, scathing pristine white tiles as he was dragged further and further away. When Ben disappeared through a door at the end of the long winding corridor, I was pushed through another set of doors. The whole place seemed to be just that. Doors. Doors that led into horrifying places illuminated in sickly light. Where's Ben? I said with no sound. I had no voice. The words were tangled on my tongue. I kept asking after trying to, but I was ignored. This time I saw a face. A real face that I could identify. It was a man around my dad's age. His eyes were cold and calculating, lips twisted into a skull. He leaned close and prodded the back of my head. Something was there. I could feel it protruding into me. A sickening crunch sent my stomach into my throat, and my response was to cry. But I couldn't cry. My eyes were dry and my chest was heaving, but where there should have been an emotional response, there wasn't. Pain. There was so much pain, and I couldn't stop it. My body reacted to his touch, spasming, but I couldn't stop it. I couldn't control my contorting limbs that were no longer mine. I screamed. I didn't hear my scream, but I felt it burning to my lungs. Something was there. Something was in my head. I felt it like a parasite, like a leech crawling into my brain. The man held no sympathy in his eyes, no mercy, nothing. When he raised his hands to signal the others around him, his fingers were slick scarlet. Count back from ten, he ordered. I did. I did when his fingers were in the back of my head once again, twisting. Ten. The number slipped from my lips and a soft sob. Nine. Eight, seven, seven, seven. On the four seven garbled on my tongue, he plunged his fingers in once again. It's not working, he grunted, turning to somebody out of my view. Protocol 2193 was administered successfully. The subject seems to be having trouble following instructions. 
Well, I'll need to do further tests, which includes going deeper than I had expected. With him distracted, I could only stare at the ceiling and wish death upon myself. I wanted to end it, I thought dizzily. I want this, I want this, I want this. When something sharp stabbed into my head, I felt something warm and wet slide down the back of my neck. I felt it dampening the sheets that I was lying on. I started counting. I was counting when a tube was forced into my mouth and something dripped down the back of my throat. At first, it was a slow drip, drip, drip. But then it was gushing through my lips, choking me and burning me inside out. The same man was there again. Count back from ten for me. His voice was far more gritted and impatient. I tried again. My lips were burning. My chest was burning. My body was burning. I don't remember the countdown. What happened next came in rapid flashes like I was watching an old movie. Time seemed to jump forwards. This time, I was standing in that same classroom in front of a desk. Something warm covered my ears. Sam, Luna, and Ben were next to me. They weren't moving and I saw their feet. I saw toes caked in dirt. I saw Luna's hair hanging in tangled rat tails in front of her face. This time, a group of people stood before us. Hold out your arm. We were ordered. When Sam stepped forward and pulled up his sleeve, I glimpsed a number etched into his skin. I couldn't make it out no matter how hard I tried. My body was working against me on autopilot. I was ordered to take a step forwards and I did. Something cold pierced my skin and I stopped thinking for a while. My mind swamped in cotton candy. My half came to sitting at a desk once again. The room was dark. The TV set was on, static blurring my vision. Anna was standing over me with a pinched expression. I felt her hands tiptoe across my scalp before reacting. She straightened up with a sigh. Are they ready? That same male grunt sliced into the silence. Anna nodded. Not fully. However, if you really want a demonstration, go ahead. Indeed. The man cleared his throat. The TV flicked to the bright blue screen. Identify yourselves. The words were coming out of my mouth and I had no control over them, but I wasn't alone. Sam, Luna, and Ben joined in, our voices once again in symphony. Stand by, Project White Rabbit, Test 3, Phase 2. Very good, now come back from 10. We did, slowly. Another training video started, this time presented by a man, but it was mute. As the numbers fell effortlessly from my lips, I was tracking red squares once again, my eyes catching each one that hit corner to corner. When we were on the number four, the bulb above exploded, showering the room with glass. I didn't move. I couldn't move. Three. The desk that I was sitting on started to rattle, and then the walls were shuddering. An earthquake was my initial thought. But when we had reached two and then one, I realized that we were the ones doing it. Turn it off, the man ordered. The TV was switching off and the room came to a standstill. Murmurs filled the air, 
a speech I couldn't understand. Agent Terran, you said Mir was a success. I did, Anna said. There seems to be something interfering with the signal. Let me fix it. The man nodded. The initial stages went better than we expected. White Rabbit is on track to becoming one of our greatest breakthroughs yet. It's still a massive risk. Anna murmured. If we fail, the consequences will be catastrophic. What we're doing will benefit America's children. The man cut her off. Now, allow me. The TV was switched back on. With all due respect, Agent Terran, we will get better results if we use GM-46. Molly spoke, my eyes found the TV screen once again, while it flicked onto what looks like an old slide presentation, before landing on one that looked stained red like it had been burned, or attempted to be burned. Underlined at the top, I could just about make out. Protocol GM-46 only to be subjected in extreme cases. Protocol GM-46 should only be used to vocal, psychological, and physical torment has no efficacy. Please, only use as a last resort. Anna shook her head. I saw a motion prick onto her face. Agent Carter, there is no need for that. Yes, there is. If no progress is made, we will be going through with GM-46. Anna's gaze snapped to the bright red screen. But it's... Stand up. Agent Carter ignored Anna and turned to us, and like clockwork we did. The door opened and four children walked in, two boys and two girls, maybe seven or eight years old. Each of them carried a white rabbit. Anna's voice shook slightly. All moral inhibitions have been removed. The subjects will do whatever we ask of them when we ask it which is the first stage of Mir. Allow me to demonstrate. She opened her mouth to speak, but Carter stepped in front of her. He gently took the hand of a little girl and strode over to Sam. Subject 626, he ordered. Kill the rabbit. Sam Benton gathered the rabbit in his arms. At first, I thought that he was hugging it to his chest, but I saw his fingers twine around its neck and jerk suddenly. There was a snapping noise and the rabbit dropped to the ground. The little girl who had been holding it lifted her head and stared at Sam with wide eyes. Agent Carter clapped his hands. Well done, he said. Now, the child. There is a pause. Sam didn't move. 626, I'm waiting. No, Sam said through gritted teeth. His voice strained. I'm sorry. No, I... Uh, I can't. I gave you an order. No, I won't. I won't. I won't. Sam's confusion was evident in his cries, and I wanted to press my hands over my ears, but I couldn't move. The world wavered, my vision blurring. I was walking. I could see concrete beneath my feet, cracks in the stone and leaves, and I was kicking through. There was something in my hand. Coffee. Four pairs of footsteps, fall leaves, dancing in the air. Our footsteps were in sync, our breathing joining together in the air. The sky was dark blue. Twilight. Luna's laugh startled me. 
I caught sight of her swinging ponytail. And then the customer was like, are you kidding me? You don't do it shakes. And I was like, no, you're two years late, maybe even three. And let me guess, she punched you in the face. Ben's voice was a low murmur. No, but she did storm out. Sam's laugh sent ice shooting down my spine. You're lucky it was late and Anna wasn't watching. She spat at me. I stopped walking, my body going rigid. I didn't know the time, the day. For a disorienting moment, I didn't even know where I was. I recognized the strip of stores by Starbucks. We were on break, I thought. The words streaming into my head. Anna let us go on break after we had worked all night and day, and we were getting lunch. It was like my body was working without me. Two worlds, both of them felt fake. Both of them felt like I was dreaming. I clutched the coffee cup so hard, half of it spilled out. I've gotta go. My voice broke around the words. The three of them turned to look at me, matching expressions, and my stomach twisted. I had to remove myself from the link. Whatever they were, it wasn't me. What? Luna frowned. But I was going to treat you guys. Looking at Luna, at the strange my brain was telling me was a friend, the breath caught on my throat. I had to tell them. Before I could stop myself, I was grabbing Sam's jacket sleeve and pulling it up. But there was no number. Sam jerked his arm away with a snort. Then once again I'm questioning if you actually have a concussion, Rocky. Concussion? Luna grabbed my hand, her fingers entangling with mine. What happened? I'm fine, I said in a sharp breath. I've got to go home. I was moving away from them before I gave up and told them everything. Wait, Sam shouted. Hey, look out for the road this time. I was already stumbling back. There were no rabbits, no blurry vision. It was my reality, the one that I knew. And yet it still felt wrong. Like the white classroom was where I belonged. The crowd felt claustrophobic when I threw myself into a sprint. Footsteps followed me back to my apartment. I knew it was them. But they were slow and I could sense them behind me. I locked my door and opened my laptop. But the camera was fried. I was looking at a black screen. Whatever footage I had managed to capture without getting caught, everything I remembered in splintered fragments, it was gone. I didn't do it to myself, I thought. Or did I? Did I destroy the camera? Without knowing. I don't know how many hours passed and I was still staring at the laptop screen when my phone rang. Three singular beeps. Mom flashed up and I grabbed it and slammed the phone to my ear. Mom, I sobbed. Mom, something. Count backwards from ten for me. A male voice. I felt my grip on the phone loosen, and I was speaking before I could stop myself. Ten. My phone slipped from my steely grip. Nine. Eight. Seven. The word was stuck in my throat. I felt myself moving, cold air whipping my hair from my face. It was raining and I was wearing a tank top. It was pitch black, 11pm. My feet were bare on wet tarmac, and a voice soft and soothing seeping into my skull.
and taking an unyielding hold. All I remember is the intense green of the Starbucks logo getting closer and closer, blurring in my eyes. Anna in the doorway, waving me inside. That was 15 hours ago. My head hurts and my body is aching and on edge. It's like a sensory overload. I jump at every little noise and my first logical response to the noise is... Attack. My mouth tastes the blood. My hands feel filthy but they're clean. Too clean. And they smell the bleach. I remember nothing. Ten whole hours have gone. My head is a cavern, my memories cruelly picked apart. There's a white rabbit at the corner of my eye and it won't go away. This time, its fur is matted with red, beady eyes colorless. When I stare hard enough, I see small arms still cradling it to a powder pink t-shirt. I see blonde ringlets hanging in white eyes. Not Sam is outside. The noises that he's making are scaring me. He keeps telling me to open the door. He's whispering into the hole in my head. I think I've done a bad thing. Have I done a bad thing? Please tell me I haven't done a bad thing. Thanks so much for listening to today's stories. Your continued support means the world to me and I hope you know that I appreciate it. I also greatly appreciate today's sponsor, Simply Safe. Take advantage of Simply Safe's early Black Friday deals and get 50% off your new home security system by visiting simplysafe.com/mrcreeves. Again, that's simplysafe.com/mrcreeves for 50% off your entire system. I hope you have an amazing morning, day or night, wherever you may be in the world. Stay safe and stay warm out there. But most importantly, stay creepy.